Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor and his friends as they encounter the former dominant race of Earth in Doctor Who and the Silurians. We will be talking about the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts and a score out of five on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so to join in on the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now, Paddy, I will hand over to you for our usual story recap, if you please. Thank you very much. Episode 1. In an underground cave system, a group of potholders are exploring the vast network of tunnels when they hear a monstrous echoing growl. One of them enters a side tunnel and is attacked by a large reptilian creature, which mauls him to death. His colleague scrambles to safety, screaming for help. At Unit HQ, the Doctor is working on his new car, which he has christened Bessie, when he is brought a message from the Brigadier by Liz. The message states that he wants them to attend a meeting with him in the country, investigating a scientific facility and its staff, but the Doctor is reluctant to go as he is not fond of taking orders. However, Liz convinces him to go by suggesting that they can visit the nearby famous cave system. Doctor agrees to go, seeing it as an opportunity to take Bessie for a test drive. They arrive at the meeting, which is in a newly opened atomic research centre, which has been built at the edge of the cave system. The facility director, Dr. Charles Lawrence, is not happy with the delays that have been affecting the operations of the facility, and is also less than thrilled with the presence of the unit. He urges his staff to make up the lost ground and then dismisses them from the meeting. The Brigadier then introduces the doctor and Liz to him, as well as his number two, Dr. Quinn, and the station security chief, Major Baker. Lawrence informs him that the facility houses a cyclotron, an advanced form of proton accelerator with the aim of transforming nuclear energy to electricity. The doctor asks what has been holding up the process, and the brigadier says that a large number of incidents with staff absences and illnesses, as well as a lot of unexplained power outages, have occurred. He then orders Baker to check all the security measures and double them. He assigns Liz to oversee the facility personnel and the doctor to check the technical issues. Quinn takes them on a tour of the facility, and Lawrence leaves as well asking the Brigadier to get things back to normal as soon as possible. After he leaves, Baker asks why Eunice is there, and the Brigadier replies that there is something going on beyond the normal technical faults and staff jitters, and that is why they are there. Baker then shares his theory that someone is deliberately sabotaging the facility. In the centre of the cyclotron, Quinn is showing the Doctor and Liz around. The Doctor realises that if one of the failures happened at a critical point, then the cyclotron could essentially become a giant nuclear bomb. Liz says that they should shut down the facility, but suddenly starts to feel strange. She then asks to be taken to the room with the personnel files, assuring the concerned doctor that she is alright. Quinn then goes back to his normal tasks while discussing the cave system and his fondness for potholing with the doctor. However, this passion has been diluted due to a death of one of the staff members recently and an injury of another. The injured man is in the facility infirmary, but the information surrounding his current condition is being kept under wraps. The doctor then asks about the pattern of power outages, but Quinn says that they seem to be completely random. The doctor asks for the event log for each of the outages, but he notices that it is incomplete. This surprises Quinn, who summons one of his technicians, Miss Dawson, and she says that the log is usually kept by Spencer, who Quinn reveals as the man in the infirmary, but the doctor points out that pages have been removed from the logbook. In the file room, Liz is discussing the effect of staff with the facility physician, Dr. Meredith, when the doctor arrives. He asks to speak to Spencer, but Meredith refuses, saying that he is to be transferred to an actual hospital. Doctor uses his position as a member of the unit to make Meredith let him see him, and before they go, Meredith warns them to prepare themselves. In the infirmary, Spencer is drawing on the walls of his room. The drawings depict strange reptilian creatures, some of which look humanoid. 
Meredith says that Spencer is prone to mood swings since he is awakened from his coma, even going so far as to try and strangle Meredith when he woke up. The doctor then tries to communicate with Spencer, but the crazed man tries to strangle him. The doctor tells Liz and Meredith to stay back as he tries to calm Spencer down. Spencer goes back to his drawings and the doctor says that whatever scared him seems to have mentally reverted him back to a primitive caveman. Back in the cyclotron, Quinn is doing a systems check when there seems to be a faulty reading. He tells one of the technicians to check one of the pieces of equipment and after he leaves, Dawson comes over and covertly talks to him about the inner presence in the facility. She tells him that he must talk to them and tell them to stop what they're doing whilst the investigation is underway. However, he says that they aren't listening to him and he can't tell any demon personnel as he fears he wouldn't be believed. She says it's too risky to keep quiet, but he says the benefits of the knowledge that they might gain far away the risks. They then run a test on the cyclotron, but one of the technicians initially doesn't respond to his tasks, seemingly having fallen into a daze. In the meeting room, which is now acting as the brigadier's office, Baker presents his security reports to the brigadier and then asks about the doctor, saying that he hasn't been able to verify him. The Brigadier tells him not to worry about it, and Baker then leaves when the Doctor arrives. The Doctor tells him about the drawings and the missing log entries, saying that they are causing him alarm. However, the Brigadier is sceptical of his concerns, saying that he needs concrete evidence to go on. Suddenly, the power fails and they head towards the cyclotron. In the cyclotron, Lawrence arrives just before the Doctor and the Brigadier, and they watch as Quinn guides the staff into the staged shutdown of the reactor. However, the day's technician from earlier refuses to shut down his section and attacks Dawson when she tries to do it for him. The doctor and the brigadier are not come out before the doctor takes over the shutdown process. Later on, the doctor goes to speak to Liz, who tells him that all the instances of staff ailments originated in the cyclotron, and she also tells him of her own experience, telling him that she had feelings of fear and oppression. She then shows him the coroner's report on Spencer's colleague, highlighting what appears to be claw marks on his body. Later, the doctor enters the cave system and hears the same roaring Spencer and his colleague did. He makes his way to where the body was found, where he encounters the creature. Episode 2 The doctor records as the creature, which resembles a large bipedal lizard, advances on him. Suddenly, a high-pitched beeping fills the air and causes it pain and forces it to flee. The doctor cautiously follows on after it, stopping when he comes across its footprint. In the facility, the brigadier gives out to Liz about her and the doctor not telling him about going into the caves. Baker enters with the potholing equipment in preparation for a rescue mission, but the doctor suddenly enters the room. In the cyclotron, Lawrence is giving out about the fact that despite all the equipment seemingly working fine, there is still no apparent answer for the power outages despite Quinn's best efforts to solve them. He tells Quinn and Dawson about the doctor's return from the caves, which seems to cause them alarm, but after he leaves, Quinn tells Dawson they need not worry since Unit didn't send a search team for him. In the Brigadier's office, everyone goes out to the Doctor for going off on his own, and the Brigadier seems sceptical of his claims about the creature he saw, since the Doctor can't give a good enough description of it. Baker suggests that maybe a group of saboteurs are in the cave system, and use a fake creature to deter people from entering the caves. The Brigadier says that he will take an armed squad to search the caves, but tells Liz to stay behind. Liz starts to object, but the Doctor says that she should stay for her own safety. The Doctor also decries the Brigadier's militaristic approach, which Baker mocks by saying that they will give whatever they discover a sporting chance. In the caves, the doctor brings them to where he saw the footprint, but it has dried into the ground and is now indiscernible. A strange rumbling fills the air, and the brigadier sends some of his men with Baker to go and try and track down its source. Baker spots someone in the shadows, and when they don't identify themselves, he shoots at them, seemingly wounding them. Suddenly, the creature appears and attacks Baker when he shoots at it. The others race to the sound of the gunfire when they hear the beeping sound. 
They arrived to find Baker on the ground and no sign of the creature. Baker says he didn't mean to hit the person in the shadows, saying his bullet ricocheted, and he then starts to cry out about bullets not hurting the creature. The Brigadier sends one of his men to investigate the tunnels, and he calls out that he found some pools of blood. The doctor says that he will return to analyse the samples, whilst the Brigadier takes his men in pursuit of the blood trail, and the doctor tells him to be careful. Meanwhile, the thing that Baker hit, which resembles the beings in Spencer's drawings, makes its way above ground and staggers off through the moors. Later, the doctor takes the blood sample for analysis with Liz, and they both agree that it seems to be reptilian in nature. The brigadier arrives and says that they lost the trail, but he has requested more men for a full-scale search in the morning. The brigadier asks after Baker, and they say he sustained some cuts and bruises, and the doctor says that Baker was irresponsible by shooting at the unidentified thing in the shadows. He then points out that the creature was seemingly called off before both he and Baker were seriously injured, leading him to believe that whoever Baker shot at, of which there may be more than one, seems to be capable of controlling the larger creature. Meanwhile, out on the moors, the wounded creature makes its way into the barn of a nearby farmhouse. In the cyclotron, Lawrence is looking for Quinn and Dawson says that he is no longer in the facility. The doctor arrives looking for him as well and Lawrence says that he has most likely gone off to his cottage to work on a book he has been writing, but Dawson says he went home as he felt ill. He leaves but tells Dawson to inform him when Quinn returns. The doctor comforts a visibly distressed Dawson and says that he is looking for Quinn to discuss the power losses. Quinn has actually gone into the caves, and as he is making his way through the system, he is suddenly bathed in a bright red light. The light leads to a section of the wall that retracts, giving him access to a secret chamber filled with advanced technology. A voice asks him why he has come, and he replies that he has come to warn them about the unit search parties. The voice says that he is too late, and one of its people has already been attacked. Quinn then asks the voice to stop siphoning power from the cyclotron, but he replies that they are still not ready to make their own power supplies. The voice then demands that Quinn help return the wounded creature to them, or else they will no longer provide him with the information he seeks. He reluctantly agrees and they give him a summoning device, which will draw their wounded comrade to them. The red light then leads him out of the chamber. The following morning at the farmhouse, the farmer discovers the wounded creature and summons his wife to call the police. The creature then attacks the farmer and his wife screams in terror as she goes to investigate the barn as well. In the brigadier's office, Lawrence arrives and gives out about the lack of progress that units have been making, going so far as to say that they have caused more problems than they have solved. The doctor then arrives and says that he has checked the entire reactor and says that there is nothing wrong with it and therefore the power losses are being caused by an outside influence. He recommends shutting down the facility until the source has been located. Lawrence objects to this and when the doctor suggests he is resisting because of the damage it will cause his career, he threatens to write to the permanent undersecretary and have units removed from the facility. After he leaves, the brigadier gets a call informing him about the attack at the farm. They go to investigate, and the doctor says that the creature most likely attacked the farmer in self-defense, saying that he actually died from heart failure due to extreme fear. The doctor then goes to the hospital to interview the farmer's wife, who is taken there after being discovered in a near catatonic state. He draws a picture of one of the creatures from the wall in Spencer's room, and she confirms that it was similar to the one that attacked her husband. She also says that it is still in the barn, where Liz remained in order to do some forensic test. The doctor and the brigadier rush back to the barn, where the creature attacks Liz. Episode 3. The creature knocks out Liz and then bolts the barn door after seeing a police car arrived. In Quinn's cottage, Dawson arrives and tells him that Lawrence has been looking for him. He shows her the device given to him by the creatures and tells her that he has been tasked with finding the wounded one. Dawson tells him about the incident at the farmhouse, although she is unable to tell him exactly what happened. Quinn then heads off towards the farmhouse. 
Back at the bar, the Brigadier's men manage to break into the barn, and the Doctor goes to check on Liz, whilst the other troops search for any sign of the creature. Liz starts to come around, and she tells him that she saw the creature, which she says resembled a bipedal humanoid reptile. The Brigadier is then shown a section of the wall that has been smashed open, and he orders a search of the surrounding area. Quinn arrives, saying that he saw all the vehicles as he was returning to the facility, and came to see what was going on. He is caught off guard when the Doctor asks if he is feeling better, not realising that this was the cover story Dawson gave earlier. Realising the doctor is suspicious of him, Quinn makes an excuse to leave for the facility, but is stopped by the brigadier who asks him, given his familiarity with the area, about potential hiding spots. His suggestions are relayed to the various search parties, but they find nothing. Quinn apologises for not being more helpful, and then makes the leave before he is stopped by the doctor, who asks him to give Liz a lift. Quinn changes his story again and says he first needs to go to the local garage to fix an issue with his car, which may take several hours. The Brigadier leaves to organise a police escort for her, not realising he's cut short the Doctor's questioning. Once he is gone, Liz points out something on the map to the Doctor. If Quinn was originally intended to go to the village first, then he drove miles out of his way to come to the farm. Quinn drives out into the moors and uses the device to try and summon the wounded creature. He is spotted by one of the search helicopters, who goes to report it back to the section leader. The section leader then relays the information to the doctor and the brigadier as they are driving past and he also says that he heard the beeping signal as well. They then hear the signal again as Quinn continues his attempts to locate the creature. The duo drive off in pursuit of the signal but they eventually lose it when Quinn successfully encounters the creature and helps it into his car so they can leave. They go to where they think they heard the sound coming from and then stop when they see the creature's footprints in the muddy road. The doctor notices tire tracks leading away from the site, and the brigadier orders all search parties to converge on their location. Back at the facility infirmary, Liz goes to visit Baker and informs him that the brigadier has ordered him to remain there until he has been medically cleared to return to action. Liz asks him what he can remember of his attack, but he can't recall anything after firing at the figure in the shadows. Liz insists that he stay in the infirmary, but after she leaves, he starts to get dressed into his normal clothes. Meanwhile, at Quinn's cottage, the doctor arrives and enters the cottage despite Quinn's attempts to keep him out. The doctor notices the heat in the cottage, and Quinn tells him that the thermostat is broken, and declines the doctor's offer to fix it. Quinn then shows his paranoia when the doctor compares the heat to that of a reptile house, and asks the doctor to leave, as he has important business to attend to. Before he leaves, the doctor says that they still haven't caught the creature. Back at the facility, the doctor and Liz search Quinn's office for any information that could explain his strange behaviour. They open a locked cabinet, and the doctor takes out some papers as well as a strange globe that shows the former supercontinent of Pangaea. The doctor then examines the documents and sees that they are full of information pertaining to the Silurian era. Dawson then enters and threatens to call Lawrence, but stops when the doctor mentions his suspicions about Quinn and the caves. Dawson puts on the phone and begins to talk about how she warned Quinn to be careful, but she stops when the brigadier arrives. The brigadier asks what is going on after she leaves, but the doctor frustratingly tells him it doesn't matter. Dawson then goes to Quinn's cottage to tell him that maybe the doctor can help him, but Quinn's paranoia has grown to the stage he thinks the doctor would try and take credit for his discoveries. Dawson is sceptical of his belief that the creature will give them any knowledge, but he says that he intends to use the wounded creature as leverage to get what he wants, otherwise he will let it die. Back at the facility, Baker enters the Brigadier's office during a meeting between him, Lawrence, the doctor and Liz, and he says that they must move in force against the saboteurs in the caves. The Brigadier has him escorted back to the infirmary, but reveals to a shocked doctor that he agrees with Baker and has sent more men in for the operation. Lawrence says that he had better be successful, as the permanent undersecretary will be arriving in the morning, and he may follow through on Lawrence's threat to have units removed from the facility. 
The two men leave the room arguing, and the doctor says he will go back to Quinn's cottage to try and convince him to accept his help. The doctor arrives to the cottage and finds the door unlocked when his rings of the doorbell go unanswered. He searches the house and finds Quinn dead in his living room chair. He spots the sonium device in his hand and he activates it. He then turns around in shock when the creature enters the room and advances on him. Episode 4 The doctor extends his hand in greeting and asks if the creature is a Silurian, which he confirms it is with a nod. The doctor then asks what the Silurian and his people want, but it hears the sound of an approaching car and flees out the back door. The doctor calls after it, stating that unless it and the rest of the Silurians say what they want, the humans will most likely destroy them. Back at the facility, Baker incapacitates the soldier guarding him under the guise of needing assistance due to his injuries and then flees into the caves. As he makes his way through the cave system, he accidentally enters a puddle of water which begins to froth over and stops him from moving. Two Silurians then appear in advance of him and he fires at them but one of them emits a paralysis ray from its third eye in its forehead causing Baker to fall unconscious. The soldier reports Baker's escape to the Brigadier who berates him for being so easily tricked and dismisses him. Liz asks if you're going to try and find Baker, and the Brigadier replies that he has most likely gone into the caves to find the saboteurs and that they can recapture him tomorrow. The Brigadier asks where the Doctor is, and he grows angry when Liz tells him he went to visit Quinn. The Doctor then enters, but doesn't immediately inform him of Quinn's death, saying that he went there to discuss the cave system. The Brigadier, growing frustrated with the Doctor's eccentric ways, asks him if he has any further suggestions on dealing with the power outages and the doctor again suggests shutting down the facility and organising a proper scientific study of the caves as opposed to a military incursion. The brigadier then storms off, saying the doctor is testing his patience, and once he is gone, the doctor tells Liz about Quinn and his encounter with the Silurian. Liz asks why he didn't tell the brigadier, and he tells her that he wants to find out more about them as he believes they aren't hostile by nature. Liz points out that the wounded Silurian attacked her, but the doctor tells her that he was only doing so because he was trying to escape, hence why he didn't kill her. He then says that he intends to go into the caves again and Liz demands to go with him or she'll tell the Brigadier. The doctor reluctantly agrees and then produces a map he found in Quinn's cottage showing her a specifically highlighted route. In the caves, the doctor and Liz are having trouble following Quinn's map and Liz suggests taking a shortcut through a different tunnel. As they go on, the doctor finds cartridges from Baker's rifle and Liz spots his identification card on the ground near the puddle. The doctor stops her just before she enters the puddle and throws a rock into it causing it to froth over. They then go back to following Quinn's roots and, and they eventually come across the secret entrance in the hidden chamber. Liz then hears the Silurian coming and they go into hiding. They watch as it enters using the summoning device and the doctor uses the one that he found on Quinn to open the door after it. They then make their way through the hidden chamber taking care to avoid the Silurian's room in corridors. They hear Baker's voice and they see him being held in a cage. He tells them the cage is being kept shut by an electronic lock and when the doctor asks if he has been harmed, he replies that all the Silurians have done is ask him questions about humanity, particularly their total population, food supplies and weaponry. He says that they are clearly planning for an invasion, but the doctor tells him not to resist when they interrogate him again, so that he might learn something about them. Their attention is then drawn to a nearby humming, and they go to take a look. The doctor says it seems to be some sort of device used to awaken Silurians through hibernation, which leads him to believe that that is the cause of the power outages. Baker then urges them to escape, and the Doctor promises that they'll be back for him. However, their way back is blocked by a large gathering of Silurians who are using various pieces of high-tech equipment. They try going another way, and they pass an alcove containing the giant creature, which the Doctor now realises is some sort of guard dog. After they leave, Baker is questioned by two Silurians about humanity's dominance of the Earth, but he refuses to give specific answers. 
The Silurians then argue amongst themselves over the threat posed by mankind, and Bake overhears one of them suggest they should invade the surface. Up in the facility, Lawrence is inquiring about the power outage, as well as the absence of Quinn and Dawson, but no one knows where they are. The permanent undersecretary, Edward Masters, then arrives, and Lawrence leads him to the conference room to bring him up to speed on everything. Masters informs him that the fate of the facility is hanging on by a thread, and Lawrence says his efforts are being hindered by both Baker and the presence of Unit, particularly the Doctor, who he deems crazy and impertinent due to the lack of respect he has shown Lawrence. Just then, the Doctor and Liz enter, inquiring about the recent power failure. The Doctor then says he needs to speak to the Brigadier, who just then enters the room and asks Masters about the current status of his reinforcements. Masters says he can't grant the request without actual proof as to what's in the caves, and the Brigadier says he will launch the mission with the personnel that he has on hand. The Doctor then forbids him from following through his plan, but both Masters and the Brigadier demand that he tell them what is going on. The Doctor and Liz tell them what they saw in the Silurian base, and the Doctor pleads with Masters to order the Brigadier not to go through with the incursion, but Masters says that he can't make any decisions without proof. The Brigadier says he doesn't want to start an interspecies conflict, but the Doctor says the likelihood of a fight breaking out due to the presence of armed soldiers seems inevitable. Instead, he asks to be given a chance to make contact with them in a peaceful manner. Just then, Dawson enters and informs the room that Quinn is dead, saying the Silurians killed him. She then reveals Quinn's encounters with the Silurians, and the Brigadier tells the Doctor that it's clear the Silurians are hostile, and Masters gives him permission to begin the mission. The Doctor asks Dawson if the Silurians ever gave Quinn a hint as to their intention, but she coldly replies that they need to be eliminated. The Doctor then tells Liz he intends to go into the caves to try and parley with the Silurians. Not long after he goes, the Brigadier leads his men towards the base, but they suddenly find themselves blocked in by dense walls that suddenly appear out of nowhere to cover the entrances. In the Silurian base, the Doctor arrives and informs them about the impending attack, but he is instead imprisoned with Baker. The two Silurian jailers begin to question him, and he tells them that he wants them and humanity to coexist peacefully, but the Silurians state that they refuse to cede their rightful ownership of the earth. One of the Silurians then informs the Doctor and Baker that the Brigadier and his men have been trapped and eliminated, and he then uses his third eye to attack the Doctor. Episode 5 The other Silurian intervenes in his colleague's attack on the Doctor, stating that he could still prove useful to them. The attacker, who seems to be much younger than the other one, states that they have no need for humans, which is why they trapped the Brigadier and his men in the cave so that they could die. The older Silurian says that the humans far outnumber their people and an action against them could lead to an all-out war. In the section of the caves where the human forces are attempting to radio for help, but the signal can't get through due to the thick walls. The Brigadier second in command, Captain Hawkins, says that they can't get through the walls without some sort of explosive, so they would have to wait until the rescue squad is dispatched for them when they fail to check in. The Brigadier points out that they have food and water, but they only have enough air in the chamber to last them about three hours. In the facility, Liz is walking Masters through all the data she and the Doctor have gathered so far surrounding the issues plaguing the facility, which seems to refute Lawrence's statements about them being a hindrance to the operations of the facility. A call then comes through from the Unit 4 base at the entrance to the cave, informing them of the loss of contact with the Brigadier's team. Back in the Silurian base, the Doctor offers to act as a mediator between the two groups, but the older Silurian says their technology is superior to the weapons of the humans, but the Doctor says that they have only studied a small fraction of humanity's weapons. When he tries to tell them what they are, Baker attacks him to stop him from revealing anything, but he is repelled by the Silurian's third eye. The Doctor again says that he means no harm and only wants to help, and so the older Silurian lets him out of the cell. The young one goes to speak to the chief scientist about this, and says the older Silurian, who is actually the leader of their people, 
is pushing them at risk by allowing the doctor to leave their control centre. The scientist says that it might be beneficial for their people, but the young one says that they can learn nothing from humanity, derogatorily referring to them as apes. In the caves, the lack of oxygen is starting to take its toll, as everyone is struggling to stay conscious, but one soldier is starting to give in to his fear and begins to act erratically. In the facility, Dawson walks in just as Masters gets an update saying that there's no trace of the Brigadier's group. She urges Masters to send more men into the caves to find them, citing the ferocity of the civilians based on what they did to Quinn. However, Liz argues against this and begins to tell them about the Doctor's attempt to parlay with them, but stops herself before giving away any more information. The others then demand to know where the Doctor has gone. With no choice, she tells them what the Doctor has done, but Dawson and Lawrence thinks that he has gone to help the Silurians and probably help them ambush the inner forces. Liz then defends the Doctor's motives, saying that he is trying to avert the war, and Masters decides to wait for another update from the search teams before deciding what course of action to take. In the Silurian base, the Doctor inquires about the history of the Silurians. The leader says that they went into hibernation to avoid a great extinction event that they predicted when they detected a small planet approaching Earth. The Doctor realises that the extinction event the leader is speaking of was when the moon entered Earth's orbit and says that they went into hibernation for nothing. As they are speaking, they hear Baker demanding to know where the Doctor is and shouting out that he is a traitor. The Doctor asks why they stayed in hibernation and the leader says the equipment is faulty and only reactivated when the new facility acted as a new power source. The Doctor again offers to act as a mediator between the two races as he has an idea. He suggests that the Silurians could build new cities in the hottest parts of the planet, places where humanity could not thrive. However, he asks that the inner forces be released as a sign of peace towards the humans. In the cave, the erratic soldier starts to come to the same mania as Spencer, but before the Brigadier can decide what to do with him, the walls recede, allowing them to go free. The Doctor thanks the leader for his compassion and offers him a hand in friendship. The younger Silurian barges in and berates the leader for attempting to make peace. He storms out and coerces the scientist into helping him overthrow the leader and defeat humanity. The scientist then hands him a biological weapon they once used on man's primitive ancestors so they can use it on Baker. Baker attempts to flee after he's brought out from the cell, but he is eventually recaptured and sent to the scientist's laboratory. In the facility, Dawson and Lawrence demand that Masters take action, but their argument is stopped when the Brigadier enters. He relates what happened in the caves, angrily informing a sceptical Lawrence that he lost men to oxygen deprivation caused by the trap. He asks where the Doctor is, and Lawrence snidely tells him about his parley with the Silurians. In the Silurian base, the Doctor confronts that he will act as an envoy for them, and he is left in the control room whilst the leader goes to inform his people. The leader finds his young rival in the cells and demands to know why Baker was taken away. He then threatens to destroy the younger Silurian when he reveals what he did and his questioning of his capabilities to lead them. He returns back to the Doctor and informs him that Baker has been infected with the biological weapon. He says that there is no cure, but he gives him a sample of the weapon so that he can produce an antidote himself. In the caves, an unconscious Baker is set down by a pair of Silurians and is awakened by the scientist, who watches as Baker makes his way back to the surface. Baker arrives at the facility and informs the Brigadier, Liz and Masters of what happened in the cave, albeit a skewed version of events due to his suspicion of the Doctor. He demands that they blow up all the entrances to the caves, but suddenly the Doctor appears and tells everyone to move away from him. Baker tries to arrest him, but the Doctor points out the lesions starting to appear on his skin. Back in the Silurian base, the young one demands to know why the leader gave the Doctor the sample. He then kills the leader, saying that he is no longer fit to be in charge. Back in the facility, the Doctor demands that Masters lock down the entire complex and place it under quarantine, which Lawrence objects to. 
Liz then enters and says that Dr. Meredith has taken Baker to the local hospital and the doctor says they need to go after them to prevent Baker spreading the disease. After they leave, Masters informs Lawrence that he intends that the facility shut down permanently, which greatly disturbs him. As he leaves, Lawrence notices that Masters appears to be busy. At the entrance to the hospital, the doctor spots Baker's body in the road and he confirms for the brigadier that he is dead, the first of potentially many. Episode 6 a doctor and nurse come out to bring Baker back inside, but the doctor informs him that he is dead, and the brigadier orders them back into the hospital at gunpoint. The doctor says he will return to the facility to start working on an antidote, and suggests to the brigadier to place the hospital under quarantine. He has Liz start a series of prophylactic injections on the staff to try and stem the spread of the virus, and she insists that he get one as well, stating that his own physiology might not make him immune to the virus. She asks if he has been able to identify the bacterium, but he says that he is waiting on a piece of equipment which the newly arrived brigadier assures will arrive soon. He tells them that the hospital has been quarantined, with an inoculated garrison of unit troops assigned to it, as well as a medical team to help Meredith. They discuss the list of those infected so far, which is made up of Dawson, the doctor and the nurse from the hospital, as well as the ambulance driver that took Baker. This says that the only people that have yet to be inoculated are Lawrence and Masters, but she has not been able to find them. After she goes to find them, the doctor tells the brigadier that while they may be able to contain the virus, they will still need to find a cure for it. The brigadier asks, based on the exposure to Baker, if they have been infected as well, but the doctor says he is unsure. Liz then comes back and says that Masters has taken the train back to London. The brigadier says they need to alert the authorities in the area to intercept him, and orders Liz to accompany him, but she refuses, stating that, as a scientist, it is not her job to man the phones. They argue, but the doctor asks her to help the brigadier, as Masters has the potential to infect the entire country. At the station in London, Masters is feeling the effects of the virus, growing steadily paler and weak. He gets into a taxi to go to the Ministry of Science and leaves just before the police car arrives at the station. Back at the facility, the doctor is overseeing the installation of the microscope he requested when the brigadier joins him. The brigadier asks his opinion on the Silurians' next move and the doctor says that they will most likely wait for the virus to run its course before making a move. The brigadier says that he has men stationed at every exit from the caves in preparation for an invasion but the doctor says that a fight must be avoided at all costs to avoid the devastation of both groups. The brigadier is skeptical of this, stating that the one that freed the doctor might be one of a few who share his thoughts. In the Silurian base, the young one is solidifying his new control of the rest of the Silurians and asks for an update on the virus. The scientist says the doctor is currently working on a cure, but the young one derides this notion, stating that the virus is beyond the comprehension of the apes. Up in the brigadier's office, Lawrence enters to find Liz waiting by the phones for an update. Lawrence mocks the whole situation and refuses to take the inoculation, stating that there is no virus and that Baker was most likely sick before he died. He leaves just as the brigadier enters, who answers a phone call informing them that the police missed Masters. He tells Liz that finding Masters in London would be like finding a needle in a haystack. At the train station, the ticket inspector that Masters brushed against as he was leaving begins to show signs of the infection. In the caves, a unit sentry is ambushed by a Silurian who kills him as he is sending a distress call. A squad of soldiers arrive to investigate what happened and they are also ambushed by the Silurian, but they manage to fend it off after it kills one of them. At the base, the young one and the scientist are observing this through a monitor and they are concerned at the fact the virus has not affected the soldiers. The young one says that they will need to capture the doctor as he seems to be the only one that can stop the virus. Up in the facility, the doctor oversees the arrival of a large cache of drugs to try and use against the virus. He asks Liz to get a blood sample from someone who's been infected and he quietly hopes that he's not too late. This hope is shattered though when the ticket inspector, as well as several other commuters, begin to collapse due to the infection. The station is placed under police quarantine as ambulances arrive to gather up the infected. 
Outside the Ministry of Science, a very sick Masters is pursued by a pair of policemen before he falls to the ground dead. This returns with a blood sample taken from the ambulance driver and informs the doctor he is slowly getting worse. Together they attempt to test various drugs against the infected blood as the breeder attempts to stall outside interference from hampering their progress. The testing process is not going well, however, and the doctor says he is beginning to lose hope, but Liz suggests another combination that could work. Suddenly Liz starts to feel dizzy, and the doctor tells her to go to the infirmary for a booster shot. She suggests he get one as well, but he defiantly tells her that he is alright. However, after she is gone, he too begins to show early signs of infection. Liz arrives at the brigadier's office just as he is informed of Master's death. He is telling her about the spread of the disease when Lawrence bursts in, showing advanced symptoms of the infection. Lawrence unloads all his paranoia and anger on them and orders them to leave, but he falls to the ground dead of a heart attack as he attacks the brigadier. In the lab, the doctor has discovered the antidote, which is fortuitous timing as the first foreign death is reported in Paris. He goes to inform the Liz and the brigadier and they go to test it on the ambulance driver. The antidote is almost instantaneous as his pulse and temperature begin to return to normal. The doctor goes back to the lab to transcribe the formula so it can be transmitted worldwide, and after he leaves, Captain Hawkins arrives and tells the brigadier that the Silurians have begun to advance out of the caves. In the lab, the doctor is writing out the formula when the wall behind him dissolves and the young one and the scientist emerge from it, having used the ray from their third eyes to cut through the rock from the caves into the lab. They then use their third eyes on the doctor, who collapses to the ground. Episode 7 this reports to the Brigadier that the antidote seems to be working perfectly and he wishes that the Doctor would hurry on with the formula as the Silurians are advancing ever closer to the base and he is bombarded with calls to send the cure for mass production. He dispatches Liz to see what's keeping him. Near the lab, a human soldier comes across the Silurians, taking the Doctor away and they kill him before going back into the caves and resealing the hole they made in the wall. Hawkins comes across the body and with the help of a technician, they move it. A short while later, Liz arrives at the lab and sees signs of a struggle, along with a balled-up piece of paper containing multiple formulas. She presents this to the brigadier moments before Hawkins enters and tells him about the body of the soldier, as well as the scorch mark on the wall where the tunnel was resealed. The brigadier goes to investigate, whilst Liz tries to unravel the doctor's formulas. She manages to work it out and sends it to the unit's chief medical officer. The brigadier and Hawkins return and tell Liz about the Silurian's infiltration and kidnapping of the doctor. Hawkins is dispatched to remove all non-military personnel from the facility, and the Brigadier thanks Liz for sending on the formula. She then urges him to mount a rescue mission for the Doctor, but he tells her that his troops are barely keeping the Silurians at bay, and therefore he has no men to spare. In the Silurian base, the young one is infuriated to hear that the Doctor has discovered a cure to the virus. The Doctor says that this was in accordance with his leader's wishes, and he is horrified when he learns that the young one killed him. The young one then says that they must make the planet uninhabitable for humanity, but the scientist says that the dispersal units are inoperable due to insufficient power. The doctor says that they will not be able to siphon off any more power from the facility as the reactor has been shut down due to their previous interference. The young one says that they will invade the facility again and force the doctor to reactivate the reactor. The scientist orders his subordinates to prepare the hibernation chambers to revive the rest of their people once they get the reactor back online. Up in the facility, the fighting has caused the emergency generators to kick in, but it does not restore the communications lines, and as a result, the Brigadier is unable to contact his men in the caves. Liz says that the Silurians could infiltrate the facility again at any moment, and so she and the Brigadier go to leave and try and request reinforcements through an outside phone line. They try the elevator near the lab, but they turn around when they hear the arrival of the Doctor and the Silurians. The Doctor tells the Brigadier to lower his weapon, lest they kill him. 
He insists that he needs Liz's help, but the young one orders a brigadier to be killed. Suddenly Hawkins appears and fires at the Silurians, but he is quickly killed. The doctor says he will refuse to help the Silurians if they kill anyone else, but the young one again says that unless he helps them, they will kill everyone. With no other choice, the doctor agrees and leads them to the cyclotron. He angrily berates the Silurians when they kill a technician upon arrival, and once again demands that they stop. The brigadier demands that to know what he is doing, but the doctor orders him to keep out of the way. The dispersal unit is then brought in, and the young one informs the doctor that it is a microwave dispersal unit that will target the Van Allen radiation belt. Overhearing this, Liz explains to the brigadier that if the belt is destroyed, then all life on Earth will die due to extreme heat, all life that is except the cold-blooded Silurians. Once the machine is connected, the doctor requests Liz's help in starting the reactor. Once they are out of earshot of the Silurians, the doctor tells her that on his signal, she is to lower all the uranium control rods into the reactor at the same time. Liz starts to protest, but the doctor tells her to trust him. The doctor tells all the technicians to go about their normal tasks and then starts the reactivation process. He goes through the normal first few steps and then gives Liz the signal. The resulting surge in power destroys the dispersal unit. The doctor then announces that due to the power surge, the reactor will soon explode, taking the facility with it and irradiating the surrounding countryside. The scientist says that they can return to their hibernation pods to wait out the radiation, and he then orders the humans to be killed, but the young one instead orders them to be locked inside so they can die from the radiation. The brigadier congratulates the doctor on his bluff, but the doctor tells him that they still need to leave the facility as it would still explode. However, the brigadier tells him that the power is still out and they won't be able to escape in time. In the Silurian base, the scientist tells the young one that the awakening system for the hibernation units is still malfunctioning, so someone will need to stay awake to reawaken the others when the radiation is dissipated. The young one says that he will stay behind even though he knows he will die. He tells the scientist that he will be the new leader after they wake up and he tasks him with eradicating the surviving humans. Up in the cyclotron, the doctor is rewinding the control panel for the reactor in an attempt to shut it down. After a few failed attempts, he decides to fuse the control of the neutron flow which short circuits the control panel but succeeds in shutting down the reactor. Later, the Doctor enters the Silurian base to find them all in hibernation. The Young One then appears and says the Doctor tricked them. The Doctor replies that he was able to shut down the reactor, and the Young One says that he will kill him before waking up the others. He attacks the Doctor with his third eye, but the Brigadier appears and shoots the Young One several times, killing him. The Brigadier asks why the Doctor came down, and he replies that he wants to know how to work the hibernation equipment so he can revive the Silurians one by one, so he can reason with them to live in harmony with humanity. This seems to surprise the Brigadier, but he says nothing. Later, the Doctor and Liz depart to get some analysis equipment and a team of scientists to help them examine the hibernation equipment. The Doctor tells the Brigadier to make sure that no one goes into the caves whilst they are gone. The Brigadier then tells him to have a safe trip, and after a curious pause, the Doctor and Liz leave. Once they are gone, the Brigadier asks one of his men if the explosives are ready, and orders them to be set up once the Doctor and Liz are well here. He tells the soldier to make sure that the Silurian base will be sealed off permanently. Inside the base, the mortally wounded young one gets up to try and revive one of the others. Out on the road, Bessie is broken down, but the doctor locates the fault in the engine and clears it. Just as they are about to leave, they see the explosions go off at the various cave entrances, which also cause the base to be destroyed and the young one dies due to falling debris. This says the brigadier must have received orders from the ministry to do so, but she reassures a hurt and haunted doctor that she knew nothing about it. The duo then drive off, lamenting the loss of an advanced civilization. End of the story.
So after that story recap, I think we shall join the Doctor in drowning our sorrows at a quick trip to the trivia spot. So what have you got, Trish? Cool. So Doctor Who and the Silurians aired from the 31st of January to the 14th of March, 1970. The writer of the story is Malcolm Hulk. Now, this is the third Doctor Who writing credit from Malcolm, but it's the first where he was the sole writer. So his previous two stories were The Faceless Ones, which he did with David Ellis, and The War Games, which he did with Terrence Sticks. We'll see his work again uh, a little bit in The Ambassadors of Death, his uncredited there on rewrites. Also, Carly in Space, The Sea Devils, Frontier in Space, and The Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Malcolm also wrote the target novelization for the story, which is actually called Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which a bit of a shit title. Yeah. But then again, like like sometimes those Doctor Who uh, target books was like, you know, Doctor Who and the Zarbi, which is like the web planet. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and yeah, I personally think the web planet is a much cooler title. Yeah. The director for the story is Timothy Combe. This is Timothy's first full story that he directed. He also did one of the Dalek fight sequences in Eve of the Daleks. Ooh. And we'll see his work again in The Mind of Evil. Now, this... Go on, sorry. I was just going to say that... Because, you know, we've talked about fight choreography in previous stories. Mm. Uh, actually, another seven-parter we talked about was Walsh Hussein's fight choreography in Marco Polo. Mm. And it's kind of... It's both sad, but good to hear that Evil of the Daleks is now getting an animated release. So we might actually mm. get to see at least some of this choreography in some sort of moving media. Yeah. So this story introduces our new producer... Mr. Barry Letts. Barry would go on to be the producer for the remainder of John's stories and the first of Tom's. So if you imagine he missed the first of John's, he's essentially mm. going to be producer for the entire run mm. of John Pertwee, which is the longest run we would have had to date. Um, none of the rest of them would have gone for that long. No. Um, and in terms of after this, you know, there, there's going to be people down the line who possibly did it for longer, Jonathan Turner being the one that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the producers that we've seen up to now in our rewatch, Barry is going to be the longest running. Yeah. Like I, at least with John after Spearhead, I think he's got like, what, 23 stories there, thereabouts? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot. I mean, he has this season with Liz. He has three seasons with Joe. Yeah. And a season with Sarah Jane. Yeah. So we've got like five seasons. Hmm. Um, and Barry is producing yeah. effectively all of, all of them. He's also contributed in writing and directing credits for Doctor Who. So his writing credits are all uncredited. Um, so he did some work on the demons. Demons? Did we decide on that? No, not yet. That's going to be an interesting one. If we go with the Philip Pullman pronunciation, because that's the same spelling, I'm yeah. going to go with demons. Yeah. The Time Monster, The Green Death, and Planet of the Spiders. His directing credits, we had Enemy of the World, which is a big favourite of ours. He has some uncredited uh, directing credits for Inferno. He also has Terror of the Autons, Carnival of Monsters, Planet of Spiders, and The Android Invasion. He's also written a number of Target novels, BBC audio stories, and Big Finish stories. And Paddy, I, we may have mentioned this before, but I'm going to say it again. He wrote The Tau Connection. 
Uh, you both love and hate Barry. That's for, for that. Yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> Barry passed away back in 2009. Now, this story is technically missing. Hmm. Quote, unquote, missing. Because the master tapes were wiped. However, it was recorded in several other formats. So we still have it. <laughs> yeah, you, you can kind of tell. And I think it's the same with scatterings of episodes mm. throughout John's run. Because the color versions of them are missing and they only have the old black and white tapes. Yeah. I, think, I, think we see, I know we definitely see it in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I know that comes up there. And in the initial release of Ambassadors of Death. Mm. Yeah. Now... In the intro, I called it Doctor Who and the Silurians. And I keep calling it Doctor Who and the Silurians. The reason for that is there's a bit of a miscommunication. And so this story, the title sequence, as opposed to saying the Silurians, which is what the title would usually be, actually says Doctor Who and the Silurians. So usually when people are referring to this story, it's the only story that really gets referred to as Doctor Who and the... Yeah. As opposed to just the Web of Fear or... The enemy of the world, whatever. So I always refer to it as Doctor Who and the Silurians. Uh, and before we go any further, I feel like we kind of missed a beat last week when we talked about um, the, the start of John's era, because obviously mm. the start of John's era is the start of a new intro for the show. Yes. And this one is incredibly fucking psychedelic. Oh, yeah. Uh, because as always, you know, John's face will appear on screen but this time it's through like almost like a kaleidoscope of uh, different colors and different like wave formats all this kind of stuff it's like a like it's like a 70s disco scene <laughs> but actually and i think i pointed this out to you years ago if you pause it at just the right moment john's head forms darth vader's helmet <laughs> with the surrounding your know, colors you know you're going to have to like find that now, pause it, screenshot yeah. it, and put it on Twitter, right? Pretty, pretty much. But again, it's one of those only things that only I can see. Yeah. You know, like if you if you take a look at Portugal and Spain and you cut off Portugal, you're left with Elvis's head. That's pretty good. <laughs> so this story introduces Bessie, mm-hmm. one of the most pivotal introductions of Doctor Who history of a car. <laughs> so on screen, the license plate reads, Who won? Yes. The actual license plate for that car, though, was MTR5, because who won wasn't available. <laughs> um, it was already registered to somebody else. So they did create a special who won license plate, though, and that was used on the car when they were filming on you know private ground. In order to drive it on in public, like when they're driving through the town, you know, on the way to the base or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to get special permission from the police because they were technically driving a car with the incorrect license plate yeah. on it. Which I just, because you never think about it in movies and TV shows, the whole deal with license plates. Do you know? Are, are those the real license plates? Are those specially created license plates? And what's the legal implication of driving a car on a public road with the incorrect license plate? It's, it's a, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> I find random things interesting, though. This is one of only 11 televised stories of Doctor Who not to have the TARDIS in it. Yeah. Which is interesting. Is it the first one? No. Um, I suppose Mission to the Unknown. Hmm. Yeah. 
I think there's another one as well that didn't have a tower sword. I think. I know. It's not the first one in there. Yeah. This story, I like the way you ended it there. That mm-hmm. he was saddened at, you know, the destruction of this sentient race. Originally, it was going to end with him saddened by the loss of the knowledge the Silurians possessed. Yeah. And Barry said no. Uh, Barry was a Buddhist and he was very much you can see a lot of Barry in a lot of John's stories. Yeah. A lot of John <laughs> a lot of a lot of the third doctor's opinions on things is very much fed by Barry and what Barry felt was important and stuff. Um so his first act of produ- as producer was to change it to him being disgusted at their murder. That was his thing. Like it wasn't about the knowledge, it was about the people. Yeah, and I think when we get into the overall discussion, I think that that changes the. If it had been that way originally, that changes the ending a whole lot. Oh yeah, and I, I think it changes how we connect with it and resonate with it and everything. Yeah, um, and actually, that, Barry has a lot of a lot of the stories in John's era, and we're going to see this as we go through. They have little hints of things that you can tell were really important to Barry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and he and he doesn't deny it like on on DVD commentary and, 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 it, and it culminates in Planet of the Spiders where it's just like yeah it's right fucking in front of you yeah and it's also like it explains like the Tau connection yeah, which has a sort of yeah. Buddhist leaning whatever yeah Barry's in this and so is Terrence Dix yeah and so is Trevor Ray another member of the, member of the production team so in the um Marylburn station so the tube station or the train station um, Barry and Terence were both rail passengers and Trevor Ray who's another member of the production team he was actually the ticket collector that you know yeah. we see passes out Barry hated it <laughs> um, Barry was an actor I believe at one point in time and he hated the idea that them having these little cameos of putting themselves in the show deprived actual actors of work and so cameos weren't allowed after that um, Barry was very much an actor's director and an actor's producer um, and he didn't like the idea that they had essentially taken money mm-hmm. out of working actors pockets so that they could have a little cameo of seeing themselves in their show <laughs> and so after this no more cameos so let's go on to the cast that got paid to be in it <laughs> the actual cast that should have been in it so, as Quinn, we have Fulton McKay. Yay! <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I am a huge fan of the show Porridge. And when I saw Fulton was in it, I was like, it's Mr. McKay! It's odd! Oh. Oh. McKay or McKay? This is so, so, okay. Prime of Machine Brody and how they pronounce McKay. So, in every, everyone calls him McKay in the show. Hmm. But I don't know if it's meant if it's the exact same spelling. That's the one thing I, I don't really know. But it's spelt the same. Yeah, so I, it, I think it might be Mackay, mm. but uh, I was like, his character's amazing. There are only two rules. One, you don't write on the walls. Two, you obey all the rules. <laughs> it's such a good show. Given how much you love him, you may be interested to know that he was actually considered for the fourth Doctor. Oh, that'd be an interesting take. Yeah, I can... I think it would have been really weird. Um, it, it, it would have been. It would, like When you hear about all these like people that were considered for various parts of the show, like Brian Blessed, I love the guy, but yellow face Brian Blessed, no, thank you very much. Mm. Um, 
Fulton's non-Who credits include Porridge, mm-hmm. Man's Best Friend, the UK version of Fraggle Rock, which I didn't even know was a thing, Local Hero, Crown Court, Going Straight, which I think relates to Porridge. It's a, it's a one-season spin-off. Yeah. Dad's Army, Zed Cars, and The Avengers. Fulton passed away in 1987, and I do have the Fraggle Rock theme tune stuck in my head. Anyway, Dawson is played by Thomasine Heiner. This is her only Doctor Who adding credit. No choice, that makes no sense. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who credits include French Kiss, Selling Hitler and Affairs of the Heart. Thomasine passed away in 2002. As Lawrence, we have Peter Miles, who is just he's such a unique actor that yeah. like you see him and you're like, Ugh. Um, <laughs> this is the first of three on-screen Doctor Who acting credits for Peter. Uh, we'll see him again in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And the one that probably comes to mind for, I don't know, but it was the one that comes to mind most for me is Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah. Where he plays Niter. Where literally every time I see him, I just hear some in the back of my mind going, Niter. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, I can hear Davros talking to him, even though it's a completely different episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he has also contributed to a number of audio stories as well, which is great. Uh, Peter's non-who acting credits include Possessions, The Bill, Blake Seven, Zed Cars, Warship, Poldark, Moonbase 3, and The Doctors. Peter passed away in 2018. As Baker, we have Norman Jones. This is the second of three Doctor Who appearances for Norman. Uh, we previously saw him in The Abominable Snowman as Krishong, and we'll see him again in The Mask of the Mask of Mandragora as Hieronymus. It's just like that voice, like it's, oh, it's so bloody resonant. I love it. Masters is played by Jeffrey Palmer. This is the first of three Doctor Who acting appearances for Jeffrey. We'll see him again in The Mutants and then in Voyage of the Damned. Outside of Who, his acting credits include The Pink Panther 2, As Time Goes By, which I think is probably his best-known role, at least for me. Black Adder Goes Forth, Faulty Towers, The Sweeney, Now Take My Wife, The Rat Catchers, The Avengers, Harper's West One, and The Army Game. For years, I was convinced that he and Judy Dent were actually married. Because oh. of because of uh, and like see they've appeared in a couple of other things together. They I think they they were in a James Bond movie together. Um, so I was just convinced that they were like actually married. Jeffrey passed away in twenty twenty. The lead Silurian is played by Dave Carter. This is the first of seven credited Doctor Who appearances for Dave. We'll see him again in Inferno, Terror of the Autons, The Mind of Evil, The Time Monster, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And the Android Invasion. His non-Who credits include The Bill, Alphavita Zane Pet, Wurzel Gummidge, Enemy at the Door, Poldark, The Girl from Starship Venus, Dixon of Doc Green, Softly Softly, and Adam Adamant Lives. The young Silurian, or the young one, as you just kept referring to him. Yeah. <laughs> I just imagine like you saying that with like your full on usually your accent is a bit mellow but I imagine you're full on or the young one like yeah. the young one <laughs> the young one which also makes me think that your man's a girl but yeah. whatever <laughs> um, the young Silurian is played by Nigel Jones this is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Nigel and from what I can find it's his only Doctor it's his ugh. and from what I can find it's his only acting credit ever 
Hmm. There is literally nothing else to this person. Lastly, as the Silurian scientist, we have Pat Gorman. This is the third of 13 credited Jeez. Doctor Who appearances for Pat. Now, a lot of these are sort of side characters or background characters, or whatever. So he was in The Evasion and The War Games. Those are the two we've seen already. We'll see him again in Inferno, Terror of the Autons, Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, Planet of the Spiders, Genesis of the Daleks, Mask of Mandragora, The Invisible Enemy, and The Armageddon Factor. He also has a huge number of uncredited appearances in Who, with a total number of appearances of 73. Jesus. Between credited and uncredited roles. So he has 13 credited, so he's about 60 uncredited roles. And in some episodes, because he was obviously doing background characters, he was playing multiple hmm. background characters. Outside of Who, his other credits include The Saint, Adam Adamant Lives, Doom Watch, Faulty Towers, I, Claudius, Blake Seven, The Bill, The Elephant Man, and he was also in the 1989 Batman film. Pat passed away in 2018. And there's one uh, trivia that I have that I know that you probably didn't pick up on because the character is so inconsequential for the story. Mm. But Captain Hawkins, the human mm. soldier, that's Paul Darrow, who became really famous for playing Avon in Blake 7. Ah, another Blake yeah. 7 person. Yeah. Cool. Not, not, not just another Blake 7. Like he's one of like, the really kind of... Well, yeah, as in, just because I've mentioned Blake 7. Yeah, oh, yeah. And it's like, Blake 7 is like... see. The finale of the show was spoiled for me because I watched one of those top 50 ending finales of all time. I, didn't, I was like, I didn't expect to see something that I had, hadn't had seen before or actually was going to enjoy watching, you know. So now I actually, I, I feel like I want to watch it. Hmm. You feel like you want to watch it. Are you actually going yes, to watch I, it? Yes, I am going to watch it. I just need to find the fucking time. <laughs> We have done the trivia. We have done the summary. It is time to get to the discussion. So, as per usual, we will be discussing the Doctor and the Companions. And then we'll be discussing... Now, usually we do heroes and villains. Sometimes it's kind of hard to put people into a specific category when it comes to that. Um, Like when it comes to story-based companions, prominent characters, and villains. So this time, correct me if I'm wrong, we're doing humans. Yes. And Silurians. Yes, we are. With the exception of uh, Liz and the Brigadier. Well, yeah, with their their yeah. companions, so they're they're yeah. keeping their section. But yeah. the story based companions. Yeah, are I, 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 all the other major characters have been del- like kind of like we did with the Ark. Yeah. They've been divert. They've been uh, divided into their respective species. Yep. So starting it off, we have the Doctor. So I think this is a great performance from John. It mm. just hands down, it's fantastic. Like he's affable, he's powerful, he's sorrowful, he's sneaky, uh, mm. he's like suspicious. Like for for no other reason, he's like a like a shifty uh, role player. <laughs> uh, but there's so many emotions on display here. Like uh, we get to see him as be a scientist. Yeah, like it's it's great. Like. This and he doesn't have a giant checklist. <laughs> no, no, he has Liz with a clipboard. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the form. No, obviously, the latter half of the story resonates an awful lot with what's going on at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, so like, and that that was the one thing. Like, I was like, 
it's it, it is an elephant in the room like the last part of this is incredibly relevant like or resonating with what's going on in the world at the moment the first but like the overall side of things though it also reminded me of the sense rights yeah um and but like it was but that's that's for the story but for john here it's like you know we get to see him be a scientist like bill was Back, back in that thing, you know, and like now, and there was like there was a montage and everything, and it's the brigadier picking up phones and being angry, and yeah, like I love a good montage. Um, his interactions with everyone here, he has great chemistry with every single actor he encounters in this story. Yeah, um, and it's great, and we also get to see how alien he is mm. because of like you know the way that he his views on certain parts of humanity, but we also get to see how human he is because of some of the mistakes that he makes in terms of how, of how he addresses stuff. And the last thing I suppose, the, the, the last part I want to say is like his heartbreak at the end is so fucking palpable, it hurts. I've seen the story three times and every time I walk away from that ending, very fucking dejected. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. And like, it's like, I it's kind of like, like, I've talked before about times like where the Doctor is lost, and we talk about um, Fury from the Deep, or we talk, you know, where like, Victoria's left behind, or we talk about the Daleks' master plan, mm. where he had the Daleks lost, but Sarah Kingdom died in a very horrible manner. I wasn't hit as bad as I was hit by that end, this ending. It's just so raw. Yeah. Because, because it, it, it just ends. It, there's no sort of like, ha- like you know, happy note, or there's no anything. It's just them driving off. The one thing that kind of does perk me up, though, when we're counting that ending, is Bessie has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Bessie has arrived. Thank Christ for Bessie. I still have, I think I still have my model of Bessie around the place. <laughs> um, but yeah, like this is just a fantastic performance from John, and I, like, I'm like, it's an immediate contender for uh, best episodes for a rambling. Oh yeah, I mean. It's the second story of his that we've reviewed in this format, but knowing, obviously, you and I have a little bit of poor knowledge of, yeah. of what's to come with John, um, I would totally agree with you on that. I think, for me, I think this is a fantastic outing by John. I think this this story, for me, has a lot of what I love and a lot about what I hate about the third Doctor as the Doctor. The bits that I love, again, science doctor, go. I will always have a weakness for the doctor being a scientist. It's just my thing, right? Um, his relationship with Liz is very, very sweet. But also, I have issues with it that I'll get to in a second. But like, when the doctor and the brig realize that Liz is in the barn and the Silorian is still there. Yeah. A, the two of them are like, fuck. And they go off. But when she's coming around and he's just brushing her hair mm. it's just this sweet tangible moment he doesn't have to say anything yeah it's just he's very gentle with her and like when he's brushing the hair off her face and he's just very very sweet and gentle with her which i absolutely love his relationship with the brig in this story it starts off interesting so we said last week that the relationship the Doctor and the Brig had in last week's story was very different from what we've seen in Web of Fear and what we've seen in The Invasion. Yeah. And a lot of that was down to the Brig and obviously the Brig getting used to this new mm. Doctor. I would say in this story, 
a lot of it is down to the doctor. Like something that occurred to me at the very beginning. The brig gave you this vintage car. Yeah. As payment for working for his organization and you don't want to do the work. I I was thinking about this, right? And I think that okay. The the brig on has the unfortunate um, unfortunate, uh, what's the, what's looking for? Honor yeah. of being the representation of what the doctor is suffering at the moment. He is stranded on Earth, mm. and the uh, and he has to rely on unit to or just humanity in general to try and help him to try and get him back to where he was. Mm. And the brigadier represents that. So I have a feeling that like some some of his you know attitude towards the brig is that aspect of things, but other other parts of his attitude towards the brig are just because of his fundamental beliefs go against some of the brigadier's yeah. actions, which is fine, right? But like this whole thing of like, the dude got you a car, yeah. And the first uh, from from our perspective, the first thing he asks you to do, you say no, yeah. And it's like he's your employer. I know that is a new concept for you, but he is your employer. He is giving you room and board. <laughs> he is, you know, giving you transport or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think the doctor's relationship with the break, like, but it continues from there. Like, okay, the doctor has an issue with the military. Yeah. And he is now attached to a military organization, which is always going to have its trials and tribulations. But like, he then starts hiding things from the brigadier and getting up on his high horse over how people should behave. And I'm like, you're making things... Stop hiding shit from him, for fuck's sake. Like, it's no wonder he's, you know, catty with you and getting odd with you because you keep hiding things from him. And it's like, he has a job to do. You know, you may not like his job, but it's his job. And as at one point part as well like he is actually the architect of his own demise because by not telling them about Quinn oh that well, yeah, when, yeah by, by not telling them about Quinn he allows Dawson to spin the narrative hmm. my thing about that right so that, that was the other thing so I think his relationship with the Brig in this story is very strained it's going to be interesting to see next week if hmm. that strain carries over mm-hmm. I'm not saying that anything he's doing is out of character which is why I think it's a fantastic performance, but it's this balance of the things he does that I love and the things that I that he does that I hate. He puts Liz, and he did this last week, he keeps putting her in this horrible position where she has to lie for him. Yeah. And it's like, A, the Brig is also her employer. Like, stop keeping secrets and putting her in a position where she has to lie and where she's holding this secret. You can tell when they're talking about the brig being trapped or going missing, it's eating her alive. Mm-hmm. That the doctor is gone as well and she doesn't know what's happened to him. I was like, stop putting her in that position because you did it to her last week as well. Do you know? And I love the fact that like she stands up to him and basically says, you're taking me with you or I'm going to tell the brig because she's just like, I'm fucking sick of this shit. Um, don't blame her the other side of it then though is how he and this is the thing with this doctor and this is a little bit of Barry right so the doctor has this higher morality Mm -hmm. 
in comparison to the humans around him. And for all he gives out about the other Time Lords and whatever, he is still a Time Lord and he still thinks himself and his ideas are superior to everybody else's. Like, the fact that he didn't tell anyone about Quinn. Yeah. How fucking dare you? And it just reminds me of the wheel in space. Where yeah. he didn't tell anyone about her either. Yeah, that's actually a good point. And this is a car again, this is this thread of carrying over from one doctor to the other. And I'm like, you'd you left that man, whatever Quinn had done, whatever his failings, you left his body sat dead in his home and told nobody. Only for the person in the story and possibly the person in his life who was the closest to him to come upon it by herself. And you say, yeah, it allowed, um, it allowed, what's her name? Dawson. Dawson to spin the narrative. She also saw a man that she clearly has great respect for dead in his home. And he'd been dead for hours. Mm-hmm. And someone out there knew and told nobody like the doctor's all about like respecting people or whatever he clearly has no respect for the fucking dead in the story because he just walks off and leaves them there well no, he does close his eyes that's great that's fantastic <laughs> what about seeing that his body is taken care of what about Letting people know, letting his loved ones know. I mean, oh, it's just like, dude, what the? F- Stop keeping that from people. So, for me in the story, it's got all the bits I love. Amazing relationship with Liz. I do quite like the banter with the brig because it's two very formidable people coming up against each other and, you know, fighting for what they believe in. I love the fact that he's constantly looking for the peaceful approach, but like the high horse has got to go (laughs) and I know that it won't you know because that's just who he is but I think because this doctor in comparison to all the others I don't know if you saw this as well the third doctor is probably the most independent doctor we've had so far yeah I can I can can he doesn't need anybody to come with him he doesn't particularly want anyone to come with him yeah he's quite happy to fuck off and do his own thing and it makes him that much more isolated. Do you know? Mm. Like, the way he was defending the Silurians is very commendable. But Liz had a point. That Silurian did attack her. And yeah, he was like, oh, but, you know, it was just trying to escape. It didn't need to attack her to escape. Her back was turned to it. It chose to attack her. He has no idea what this human woman is like. Yeah, or how frail she may be. How or... frail she may be, what kind of response she would have. That Silurian had no idea that maybe he could have interacted with her and she would have been fine. That Silurian chose to attack her. Yeah. And to say like, oh, well, he didn't mean... You don't fucking know that. You don't. Like, one of them didn't attack you. Well, have a good fucking luck for you then. <laughs> But yeah, I think for for the second story, the, it's an amazing outing because like, I'm I'm giving all these negatives, like all these things that I don't like, but they're what make him a well-rounded character. Mm. He is not one-dimensional, and that's fantastic to see. 
and it makes for a very interesting and intriguing story. So it sounds like I was kind of ragging on him, and in some ways I was, but it made the story all the better for it. Like, yeah, no, but like, we, like we've talked, like you know, obviously we've gushed about the first Doctor, and we've ragged on him for some of his, you know, inappropriate behavior in certain stories mm-hmm. that we actually liked him in. So, you know, yeah. I, I think it just again it keeps the the character going with the sense of there's light and dark and there's it's always makes for interesting stories I think. Mm. so we move on to liz liz puts up with a lot of guff from both the doctor and the brigadier <laughs> oh she puts up an unbelievable amount of bullshit unbelievable i will say one thing right i'm gonna say this outright mm-hmm. because i have something to say about liz and the break later on her interaction with the brig where he said, you know, Michelle, come with me. I need you, whatever. Yeah. She was in the wrong. Where she's like, she's like, I'm helping the doctor. I'm a scientist, not a phone person. Yeah. She was in the wrong. For two reasons. A, he's her employer. And he told, you don't just get to say no in that situation. And not with that attitude either. But two... This is a pandemic situation. It's all hands on deck. And he needed a scientist on the fucking phone. <laughs> like, she was totally in the wrong. In her, She got indignant over it without even asking what he wanted her help with. And when it cuts to her later on the phone, she's helping liaise with him and she's talking to the doctors while the doctor is doing his research. Mm. And it's like, don't get fucking uppity about it when you don't have reason to. Like, I work, my job, I do training and process governance, that's my job. When I first got my job, I was doing content development. Mm. And one day, I got a request saying, I hadn't been on the phone for months. I wasn't a customer service agent anymore. I, I I wasn't even part of that team anymore. There was an emerging issue. There was calls flooding in. We need you to answer phones. And I said, okay. Because it's an all hands on deck situation. Mm -hmm. Your pride does not get to come first. So I, I, I do agree with that aspect of things, but I like it it kind of, it's more of my point with the brigadier, but the way he says, you'll do as you're told that kind of fucking rubs me up the wrong way. That is someone who's used to controlling military, who's now in charge of a civilian, who doesn't know how to adjust his tone. That is wrong. The way he responded to her is wrong. Yeah. But she was wrong as well. And her initial refusal was wrong. She is a member of unit. He makes what She is a member of UNIT. And UNIT is a paramilitary organization. She will do as she is fucking told. I understand where the mentality comes from. I understand where her indignancy comes from as well. But it's like, pick your battle, Liz. This wasn't it. (laughs) This by far was not the battle. Do you know? Mm. You're also not a nurse, but you were going around giving people injections. You're also not a fucking HR person, but you were going through HR files. Like, pick your fucking battle. Like, see. Like it's it's the thing with Liz, right? Is that we again we get to see her, do, like we get to see do her do what she is very good at. We get to see her be a scientist. Yeah, which I love. Yeah, like which is which is great, and like but again, 
she's still not getting the, the respect she deserves. Like she's still being addressed as Miss Shaw. Mm. It's like despite the fact that she's a, like a fucking you know a doctor. So would you like? I'm just like wait, and a part of me is wondering now that if he had called her doctor, like if he had said Doctor Shaw, I need you to assist me or whatever like that, would her response have been a bit different? I don't think it would because Liz, the character, has mm-hmm. never made a point of correcting him on how he addresses her. Could this be the shot that brought the camels back, though? Maybe, but he still, she, she still doesn't correct him later. Yeah. It's just you know, a... She says, I'm a scientist. Yeah. She doesn't say, I'm a doctor. <laughs> Batman's a scientist and he, and he fucking yeah. doesn't. Like, yeah. There's lots of stuff I love about Liz in this, though. I mean, mm. I think Liz, actually, you know, the fact that she gets so uptight or odd about uptight song we're so odd about it like we do get to see just how much of an amazing person and why she's one of my favorite companions mm-hmm. she's an analyst she's a scientist she's a, she can do fucking everything liz shaw is like one person who like every possible companion role you could have so far she's ticking all the boxes <laughs> like all the way down she's the swiss army companion <laughs> yeah um i love her relationship with the doctor for the most part like i said mm-hmm. there's a couple of moments where you're like what the fuck and it seems like her job is to run interference between him and the break which i think is totally unfair <laughs> but you know i can't i can't hate her for standing up for herself i just think that particular instance was the wrong hill to choose to die on do you know um you know there are plenty of other times when you could have um done it um also i'm just gonna say it her potholing outfit with the pigtails is the most fucking adorable thing ever. I know, like, I mean, her skirt is already getting shorter and her boots are already getting higher. Yeah. But, like, the potholing overalls with the little pigtails and the heart hat, that was fucking adorable. Uh, yeah, no, it's just like... You see, all right, in, 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 my, in my job, right, hmm. I, when someone asks me to do something, I'm like, yeah, no, sure, not a bother, or whatever, you know? But when someone like kind of when when someone that when someone barks at me to do something, I'm mm. like I and just like again like I I know that it might be within my wheelhouse to you know it's not outside the realms of possibility for me to do something you know, but if someone barks at me I'm like hang on a fucking second there no you don't get to speak to me that way, but like and that, that's like even with my boss who I've had who have a great relationship with, like if he turned around and did that to me I'm like hang on a fucking second no man like you don't speak to me that way. Well, there's a difference in terms of, A, I have worked with you and I've seen you have that reaction, yeah. so I could totally say that that is how bad you react. Yeah. Um, there's a difference, though, in situation and organizational structure. And yet the brig is, and we'll talk about the brig in a second, the brig is at fault mm-hmm. in the fact that he treats the doctor and Liz as if they're soldiers, and they're not. Yeah. However, they are civilian attachments to a military organization and I don't know much about the military, you'd know more about it than I would but I would imagine that they are still expected to follow a majority of military protocol within that if, if you're hired by them yeah, then yes mm. if you're just some sort of like consultant that comes in every so often, not so much yeah, whereas we're told here that she's a member of you yeah, yeah, you know I mean? yeah, she signed on the dotted line um, but 
so yeah, but I think that just like that that thing just resonates with me because I've been in that scenario before. Oh, I've seen you in that scenario. Yeah, before. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, don't like, don't fucking bark at me. If you want me to do something, you can ask me to do it, and I probably will end up doing it. Yeah. Um, so I, I did like that to define streak. It's like, look, I'm worthy of respect. I'm not a fucking whatever you know oh yeah i yes. just think it was the wrong time to choose to do it well you, you you've also seen that from me so oh, yeah. it's yeah oh yeah yeah um but i do like now i had to phrase this very carefully because i initially wrote it out like oh it's not, it's nice to see the doctor rubbing off on her but no that's very wrong to say <laughs> <laughs> so i also said it's great to see the doctor's influence on her okay by the way that she after he spoke to her, she didn't, for the rest of the story, she didn't harbor any specific hatred towards the Silurians. No. But in fairness, she didn't have any specific hatred to them after they attacked her either. She was just aware of the fact that they had attacked her. Yeah. Like, oh, the, yeah, like, even like that is, like, that's, again, supporting the point is the sense mm-hmm. of, she was like, well, it fucking attacked me. But again, I suppose if you think about it, like, what does it, at that point, what does an animal do when it's cornered? It yeah. lashes out. I think her thing was, it wasn't so much about the fact of like, you know, it attacked me. I think it was more a case of, I, I, my read of it was, she was trying to remind the doctor that, you know, the one he met may have been really nice. Yeah. But the one that she met wasn't. It's the same one. Had he not spoken to the leader at that point? No. No. But, like, you know, so, like, yeah, you had a great interaction with it. I didn't. You know, and you can't ignore that fact either. You know, and she doesn't go all fucking... Da- we'll talk about Dawson in a minute. She doesn't go all Dawson on the fucking thing. No, no, she doesn't. Uh, go back to the creep, Dawson. Um, <laughs> but and also, again, and now, obviously, the Doctor has to take the lion's share of the credit for this. But Liz comes in and helps save the day. Oh, she yeah. She transcribes his formula. Which she says at the moment, like she has no idea which one it is or what what way that it's written out, but she works it out and she sends it on. And, ta- and thankfully, the brigadier does thank her. Keep the brigadier and does she's also the one who is working the um, rods with the generator, which yeah. I did like. I love how, and we'll probably get to this when we talk about Liz's departure, right? Because, spoiler alert, it is relevant to, to that conversation, right? Yeah. I love how Liz is the one who does the explaining. The doctor's doing his thing, and Liz is explaining to the brigadier literally everything that's going on. Yeah. What belt are they talking about? What the hell does that mean? And Liz is the one explaining while the doctor is off doing his thing, which I quite like because, you know, sometimes the doctor is just an information dump, which yeah. takes out of the story. But to have another character naturally in that position, I think mm-hmm. works really, really well. Mm-hmm. I agree. Should we talk about the brig? Oh, brigadier. This might be the only story from memory that I hate the Brigadier. I don't hate him in it, but I struggle to like him. Like, don't get me wrong. There are some fantastic break moments here. There's some really, like when he defends the Doctor and Liz from the the, the, the bureaucratic interference. Mm. Um, like, always up to the hilt. Um, but, and again, it's like he doesn't treat them like garbage, but there are times where he seems really overly skeptical. That's like, man, with all the fucking shit that you have seen, 
in your time in unit and with the doctor. Why are you being so fucking like, are uh, you sure? You know, I actually don't mind that. This is probably where you and I are going to disagree. So like, okay. I like the fact that he doesn't take everything the doctor says at face value and he challenges him because this isn't just the doctor, the brig and Liz. If it was, I'm sure the brig would be absolutely fine. Let's go hunting for Silurians or let's go find them or whatever. But that's not the way it is. The brig has a specific charge and he has people to report to. Mm. You said there was a footprint. Where is your evidence? You know, if you want me to get more personnel or more funding or more people in here, I need fucking evidence I can present on paper. Because even if he believed the doctor, which I don't think he disbelieves him, I think he just wants him to prove it. He needs evidence that he can show other people. But see, this is like, as you say, like this is where like the reading of the scenario comes in differently because just from some of the interactions, like, it, it, like there's, I don't pick up on the subtext of like, give me something to work with. It's a case of like, well, have you got any evidence to back that up? As because, it, it, like, your point there is very rational. You know, he need before he can do anything, he needs to have present proof to his superiors before he can requisition something. Well, I didn't get that read from the way that he was talking. I think my thing is, if you look at it when Masters comes into it. Yeah. And Masters is asking for that evidence, you get why the Brigadier was asking for it. Because mm. the Brigadier was going to have to call up Masters anyway, or call up someone in the Ministry. His, like, phantom people that he always called the Ministry to get approval. Yeah. And so that's, that's the thing with me. It's like, you know, the Doctor needs to be challenged from mm. time to time. And... You know, he wasn't coming up with any evidence to the contrary. Like, you had Baker saying one thing. You have the doctor making aspersions to something else with no evidence. The evidence they saw was that whoever was in the caves was killing people. Hmm. You're saying that you don't think they were. Okay, well, prove it to me. Like... I can't change my approach to the situation <laughs> on your word alone. People died. Prove it to me. <laughs> that like that's and this is where you and I are going to differ though on our read of that situation. Yeah, no, but then again, like we've always said, like that we we just so happen to agree. I'd say like ninety percent of the yeah. time. Um, this is this is a total. This this story is like the definition of an RP session, and yeah. how you and I sometimes read RP sessions slightly differently. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, see, okay, this is the thing now, right? Is that the break seems like a break away from char- from characters of the type of character he's meant to portray in other series and stuff that I like. Mm. And the, the Brig is like, he's almost the antithesis, I think that's the way people say that word, mm. of those particular types of characters. But I just felt like they here, he actually became one of those characters. And I, it, I, I, I suppose it's a small bit of personal betrayal, you know, <laughs> because, because like up until now he was so good. And I, 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 but I think really what it was is the fact that I had, so my first run through, mm was very, very strange. Mm. I wanted to get into Classic properly, so mm. I started with Tom, because that was the one that you and I both knew. Yeah. And it was it was a way for us to actually have conversation. Yeah. So then I went back and I started with one, while simultaneously watching four. Mm. So obviously I have this, in, this experience of the brig 
as he is with four. Mm. And then comes time when I eventually catch up with three. I'm seeing the brig in his infancy. Or, or even with two, but like, like properly in his infancy in terms of being a recurring character on the show. Mm. So again, like when you go back and you see like this this not so bright moment in an otherwise illustrious career on the show, it's very jarring. Now watching it sequentially, it's not as bad as the first time I remember because the first time I thought like he was an absolute fucking prick from start to finish. I didn't, I didn't even address the good points, but here there are good points. There are parts where it's like. He is defending his people to the the and that he's defending them against any outside influence that will like that questions them or hampers them. Mm. But then when he has like and again as you say, like it's probably the stress of the scenario. But I just always feel like, you know, he should know better. My thing of it is we've compared <laughs> we've compared characters in Doctor Who to characters in MASH a lot. Yeah. Think about Potter. Yeah. Like Colonel Potter. There are times when he goes full fucking military. Mm-hmm. And you're there going, what the? F-? But the situation required it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's how I read the brig. When the situation requires it, he goes full military. Do as you're told. We need to get this sorted, whatever. I do love, to your point, I love how... And this is why I like the fact that we're watching them in order and not the way you did it before. Because you imagine if we recorded this when you first watched it, that would have been weird. Mm-hmm. Um, he is still a big defender of his people. Like his thing with Liz and the Doctor and defending them against this bureaucracy is, hold upon, my people are doing their job. And yeah, he'll challenge them to do their job better. He'll challenge them to bring him better results. But they're doing their fucking job. So fuck off and leave them do their job please you know yeah. that's his thing but like we still see him the same brig in some ways that or the same lethbridge stewart that we saw in web of fear leading from the front yeah. every time he is pistol out he's the one at the head of the pack i think his assessment of the cave situation the way he treated everyone in there you know he gave everyone their space the poor blighter that was fucking losing his mind and writing on the walls. Like the brig didn't try to scream at him to come out of it. He's like, no, just leave him be. Just, yeah. just leave him be. Do you know? He's really, really good. And while it was scary, I love how when they were at the hospital and they found Baker. Hmm. And the doctors run over. And the brigadier draws his weapon. And you're there kind of going, oh, he's going full military. But it's not. It's like he recognizes this hospital has to be quarantined. Yeah. These people can't be allowed to leave. And he immediately gets it. And I like that because, again, going at it from a sort of looking at last week, a little bit this week, and knowing a bit about the future, sometimes the brig can be presented as just the military and kind of like dumb, you know, yeah. in comparison to the doctor and whatever. You know, that he's the military, he's not the brains of the operation or whatever. And I like the fact that here we get to see intelligent, measured reactions from him. And like he gets frustrated at things that are, are understandably frustrating. Um, and I like that. And he does trust the doctor. Like when the doctor is taking the Celerians into the um, collider thingy at the end. Oh, yeah. You know, he clearly isn't happy with the situation. 
but he lets the Doctor and Liz do what they want to do. Your point about Colonel Potter is very interesting there because I always remember one of Potter's last lines from MASH, which is like that, the time when he says, um, I remember the time you pulled down Winchester's drawers in the OR, you know, like I had mm. to come down, you know, but inside I was laughing to beat all hell. Mm. And like 99% of the time, that that is the break. Mm. But this time, that ending, like the, like... the ending is the thing. That's the... Right. And I, and again, I, I have just like a core issue with the way of the gun, a small brush, shall mm. we say. And here where, no, the Doctor has proof that there is a peaceful element to Silurians, to Silurian society. There was one and that one is dead. There was, no, there, there was one. But I think there was an indication that there was possibly more. Because of the way that um, the leader had said he had spoken to these people and that, you know, you'll act as an envoy. Now, obviously, it's not like, you know, the majority of them are peaceful. But I do like the idea of a one-on-one slowly and each time, like, more, if they manage to get one on board, like, more, like, the next time they bring someone out of hibernation, it will actually go easier. I I, I like the slow and steady approach that the doctor was opining. Hmm. And I just feel that it it's just one of those things of where it's like, you know, I, I would love if there was extraterrestrial life. I think it would be, you know, phenomenal. Mm. But I'm constantly afraid of like, you know, what fucking humanity would actually be like. Like, are we going to be like Star Trek? Or are we going to be like, Mar- like you know, just that typical thing of it's like, you know, fuck it, you know, shoot it. Yeah, like, the Brigadier at the end. Mm. I'm conflicted. Because my biggest issue with the ending of this story is not that he blew up the entrance mm-hmm. or entrances. That's actually not my problem. My problem is he lied about it. Yeah. He always knew that was the plan. It's not a plan he came up with after they left. That was always the plan. The charges were in place or whatever. And I agree with Liz. It probably wasn't his choice. He is a cog in a wheel. Mm. And we've seen it before, we'll see it again. He needs approval from higher-ups for most of the actions that he needs to take at, at any scale. So, I mean, Liz makes the point, the Ministry was afraid. Mm. Understandably so. Not the best reaction for humanity, but an understandable one. You know, not the one we want to have, but one the one that's understandable to have. So I don't mind that he blew it up at the end. I'm sad that that's the sort of side of humanity that they decided to go with in their story but it's an understandable side my issue is he was nodding and smiling along with Liz and the doctor when they were saying like oh we'll be back next week we'll bring this and that with us blah 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 blah. all this bullshit and he was nodding and smiling knowing that that was never going to happen why didn't he just tell them but see, this is like a part of me like is wondering like, was it the ministry telling the ministry of defense telling him what to do, or him making a recommendation to them, because of that look he has when the doctor tells him his plan, like while they're in the Silurian base, hmm. and the doctor says, oh, like if we bring them all one to one, we might be able to negotiate with them better, and then there's this very, like, troubling troubled look on his face. My my interpretation of that look is that is not the doctor's choice. The doctor doesn't get to decide that. Mm. 
<laughs> but like, but see, all right, if and again, this comes down to the difference in, of interpretations. Mm-hmm. But like, if that was the case, like that that looks more like, excuse me, you fucking what, as opposed to, I don't think it's going to go that way. Well, yo, no, it's an excuse me, you fucking what, as in, yeah. What the hell are you doing making all these plans for our planet? You don't have the authority here to make that decision. Now, did the Brigadier go back and say, I recommend we destroy them? Possibly. But at the end of the day, that's a recommendation. Yeah. The orders came from higher up and he followed his orders. My only issue with it, like I said, I don't like the fact that the story decides that's the half of humanity or the proportion of humanity that's going to try and represent yeah. Um, I don't like that, but my issue with it, and in many ways, I think the doctor's issue with it, is that the brigadier lied. Why not just tell them? Yeah, it would cause an argument with the doctor, but fuck it. That's not the doctor's choice. No. Just tell them. It's the idea that he lied to them. And was nodding and smiling. Oh, yeah, yeah we'll see you next week. Bye, bye. I don't, fuck off. What the hell? Yeah. It's just something very... I, I, I don't know if it's underhanded is the right word, but it's just duplicitous more so than anything. It's duplicitous. It's a bit condescending. Yeah. Do you know? Um, it's, I know something you don't know. And that's, and you know, maybe, maybe that, maybe that was the message from the ministry. Look, you know, this doctor was going off in, in their estimation, half cocked throughout this entire project. You know, he wasn't, you know, following orders he was working independently we don't want him involved anymore so f- he's not to know like maybe that wasn't the brigadier's choice we don't know but that's that's the thing with like you said it just ends yeah <laughs> we don't get any sort of resolution so i'm there going you know trying to give the brig the benefit of the doubt and i'm like maybe he was ordered not to tell him but like all I know is that it made for a sad patty. It did. So, speaking of humans and the way they're represented, how about we speak we speak about the human characters in this story? Yeah. So we have five. We have Lawrence, Baker, Quinn, Dawson, and Masters. Now, the majority of them make up the same face of humanity, but there's one that I, I actually quite enjoyed. Um... In terms of like their, their consistency. Okay. So, who should we start off with first, do you think? I will let you pick the order. I don't mind. Right. Well, I have it Lawrence Baker, Quinn Dawson, the Masters. Cool. <laughs> All right. So, he reminds me of, like, of a weird combination of Clint from the Ice Warriors and mm-hmm. Robson from the Fury of the Deep. In the sense of, like, they won't look at evidence... They treat their underlings like shite. That no, they, the only like, evidence is the Clint side of things. Treating their underlings like shite is the Robson side of things, and they generally think that they know better, despite no evidence to back that assertion up. And over time, he just became like a massive pain in the ass, and like, he's never presented as an actual roadblock for for the for, for the story. No. He's, not even, he's not even a villain by circumstance. He's just a bitchy backseat driver. 
Yeah, my thing with Lawrence is Lawrence is a character we have seen time and again on Doctor Who. It's only been six seasons and we've seen this character about fucking 20 times, right? Yeah. The project must come first. Mm-hmm. Not just the project, my project, my reputation, my career must come first. Fuck people. Fuck their safety. You know, you're, pilot, you're piling on evidence. I don't... This is nonsense. Everything is nonsense. It's like... Everything is nonsense because you're not getting your way. And it's like, you know, you still haven't found out what's happening with these power drains. It's like, well, they told you your machine is working fine. So they're investigating alternative methods, you ginormous jackass. Um, and over time, well, he's not a blocker. Like, he's not a roadblock in any way, except that he brings in masters. Is the only thing. Um, he becomes more and more fucking delusional mm. as it goes on. Like, he goes from being... The sort of stereotypical lead scientist figure that we've seen time and again to being just a dickhead for no fucking reason to being a mm, how to be non ah fuck it it's our podcast a classic pandemic denier yeah there is no such thing as what do you mean? There's no such thing. That guy's face is falling off. That doesn't matter. There's no such thing as a pandemic. There's no illness. What are you talking about? Yeah. To being an absolute paranoid lunatic at the end. Yeah. I think and it's uh, it's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault. Like, he says he's the lead scientist. He doesn't actually do any science whatsoever. He doesn't follow anything based on the scientific method. I'm like, you're not a scientist anymore, buddy. You're a fucking director. And his biggest thing is, we can't shut it down because the research. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure whoever is funding your research would actually be more than happy if you take two weeks to shut down the machine and find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always presented in Doctor Who that like, oh, we can't stop if we stop the research or whatever. It's like, no one's sponsoring your research wants people fucking dying. Yeah, it's like you know they they want their stuff to actually be researched by living people as opposed to corpses. Yeah, so I like I agree that like I wouldn't say Lawrence was a villain. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's even a villain of circumstance. He's a pain in the hole. Yeah, and he could have been incredibly deadly at the end because of his. Oh, this is so weird saying it. Oh, in the current climate, his refusal to take. The medication that would yeah. prevent the spread of the pandemic. Yeah. I shouldn't laugh at it because people are dying, but like, it is so weird to talk about this now. But it, but it gets, I like, it's okay. Like, I, I think that's, you know, we've talked about pr- plenty of times is that there's an element of the Doctor Who fan base that has given out about primarily Jodie's run. Hmm. That it's, you know, it's too in-your-face, it's too PC, it's too woke, or too whatever. It's like, yeah. Here we have a story that was made in, well, what did you say? Uh, it was 19- aired in 1970, it was recorded in 1969. Yeah, so it was aired in 1970. We're nearly 50, we're, we're actually 50 years on from the airing of this story. And we're facing concepts brought up in that story. And... Like so, to the element of that fan base, you know, two fingers up. But in in the reference to science fiction, hmm. it's amazing the stuff that science fiction, way back when, was able to, as they thought it was like this unattainable thing, or like a very like, or like you know, possibly, um, an unimaginable future. 
we're living it. Yeah, and the thing is that, like, I mean, we're living in a current climate. You and I are both in our early 30s, right? Just about. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm pretty sure that when polio vaccinations first came out, there was probably people who had the exact same response to what we're seeing now. It is an unfortunate cycle that happens over and over again. And while this isn't true of everybody, what is true of Lawrence in this story is that he's selfish and ignorant. And he is ignorant because of his selfishness. His selfishness won't allow him to read the evidence that's being put before him. And like it doesn't even need to be like a pandemic because like one thing that one of the symptoms were, were lesions on the body, yep. And it just kind of brought back you know like a small bit of uh, memories of like the AIDS epidemic and like the perceptions over like oh, AIDS was only ever afflict was only ever afflicting this section of society, yep. And then when it came into when it started affecting people that weren't in that section, it was like well there's obviously something else going on or maybe they're they are in you know they are gay or they are whatever it's like mm-hmm. no they're not taking any of your fucking boxes this is something beyond your yeah. narrow scope and it needs to be treated beyond the narrow scope so yeah like watching watching the story reviewing the story was like it was really hitting very close to home yeah it was i obviously i first watched this story 10 plus years ago mm-hmm. i watched it again what six months ago? Yes, maybe yeah. a little bit further than that. But uh, no, Christmas time, I think. Yeah. So I've now watched this story twice. Yes. During the current COVID pandemic, and it was uncomfortable both times. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not that it was uncomfortable. He is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable yeah. to see the story as a whole. Is like holy shit. Lawrence's reaction, it for me as someone who fully supports vaccination, who fully supports mask mandates and whatever, Lawrence's reaction is the thing that I find uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, it is. And that's the thing about Lawrence in general is he's not a villain. He's not a villain by circumstance. He's uncomfortable mm-hmm. in everything he does. Yep. I agree completely. So after Lawrence, you had Baker? Baker. And, like... Norman Jones, mm. I, okay, I'm going to say this now. The supporting cast in this story is phenomenal. Oh, they're very good. Oh, they're even, very good. Even Lawrence. Mm. Like, you know, like, as annoying as that character is, he's played him so well. Um, so, yeah, this story definitely goes into the one of the great supporting casts mm. of, of the, was it the 50, 52 stories that we've done so far. Um... Nor- and like Norman Jones is just fantastic. He's he's in this show three times. We've already discussed him once. You and I know him from the third time he's going to be into it, and he just delivers the whole time. And I enjoy characters. I enjoy watching characters like Baker because they start off so affable and likable, you know. And then we get to see the real character underneath when they fall to the stress of the situation, mm. you know. This paranoid, you know, a different sort of paranoia. Like there's like saboteurs, you know, and and like no, it, it like I do like the fact that he's taking an event, and he's taking like you know he's like, okay if we strip away all this you know bullshit, it 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 is clearly sabotage. He's also not wrong. 
No, he's 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 not. <laughs> no, no, he, he he no, he's not. But like, he was, but he's trying to. He's taking the stuff that the doctor has presented, or stuff that he has seen himself, and he's trying to put it into a frame of reference. That's like, well, no, like it's clearly it's like a it's a big machine. It's like a Trojan horse. It's whatever, yeah. and it's like no. The thing is as well is that with with that sort of thing, right? Is it the stress of the situation? So Baker's final moments, you know, like the the the, the um, call, like calling the doctor a traitor and attacking him and all this kind of stuff. So it's like, is that him under the stress of the situation, or is that who he always is beneath this, you know, very nice uh, facade when he first meets people? No, and the thing about that is right is that is it's the acting of Norman Jones because mm-hmm. you're constantly kept guessing. It's like, is it one? Is it two? Or is it a combination of one and two? Well, my thing is, right, I never thought he was nice. I never thought he was a nice guy. Ever. Okay. From his first introduction, I had a big question. And this is goes happened the first time I watched it and it happened in the rewatch. He is constantly referred to as Major Baker. Yes. But he is in civilian clothing. Mm-hmm. And throughout the story, do you know what he reminds me of? It's that stereotype, stereotype you see in movies and TV of... You know, the former military guy who takes up a security position and thinks he fucking rules the world because he's the head of security and whatever. And that's what Baker felt like to me from the beginning. Right. He was a little bit helpful to the brigadier at the start, mm-hmm. but very quickly, like before episode one ended, you could tell he did not appreciate Unit getting involved. This is his, this is his beat, you know. He's the security man here. Who the hell are you coming in? He's very used to being the man in charge and he does not like it when other people are coming in. He had ascribed the fact that this is sabotage very early on and he thought that Unit would come in and would support that theory with him and that he could maybe work with him on that. But as soon as he realized that they were looking at other methods, that they weren't just going with sabotage straight away, suddenly it was like, well, no, like he doesn't want to work with them. He doesn't, you know, he will constantly try and get out of the hospital even though he's clearly not well. Um, and he's constantly, like, he's very gung-ho. Like, the halter all fire. Yeah. And the fact that he actually shot. And it's like, what the hell? Um, he's very gung-ho. I, I never thought he was nice. So his breakdown at the end, I will give him a small bit of credit. Which is, I don't think his mind could handle what he saw. Hmm. So yeah, stress stretches the situation. Yeah, the idea that you know it was these you know alien as in non-human creatures that were doing this. I don't think his brain could fucking compute what that was. I think it threw him over the edge. I think he always had the possibility of doing it though. I think that was always ingrained in him because we have that from the beginning when he tries to get out of the hospital and he's like, no, like it's saboteurs. And he's constantly going on about it. It's like he. He got, he got that in his mind, and it's all that he would do. And then when the doctor was sort of trying to, you know, ease the situation, he saw the doctor as the saboteur. At that point, he's a kind of a more competent. Again, we're going to go to the mash reference. He's kind of a more competent Frank Burns. Yeah, he likes being the chief of his own little fiefdom. I like that. I, I maybe I'm mistaking his civility. For, for friendliness yeah. because the, he is quite civil to the unit crew compared to Lawrence he's like he's going up and giving a big giant cuddly hug yeah but that's a very low bar yeah true 
Yeah, that, I think that's probably what I'm kind of going for. It's just like, like Norman Jones, he just seems like like a, such a stern granddad. That, mm. that is that is fond of you, but still very stern. Mm. So then we have Quinn. So for me, Quinn is the one who started out as the nice guy. Oh yeah, no, he, he, Quinn, he Quinn for me was he came across as incredibly nice, you know, very supportive, you know, whatever. You know, maybe a little bit misguided. You know, that that's what you kinda like first and second episode, like, oh, he's re- he's just a bit misguided. Do you mm. know? But then you look at him more closely, he treats Dawson like shit. Yeah. And he's very clearly willing to set everyone and anyone aside in his pursuit of knowledge. One of his colleagues died. Yeah. And he's still going on about, oh, no, no, they they have all this knowledge to give, whatever. And you're like, you... Uh, I don't feel sorry that he died. <laughs> uh, that's the thing. Like, I wasn't, like, particularly perturbed by his death at all. And it's like, he reminds me, like, of... He's a combination of Maxtable mm. and Lesterson from Power of the Daleks. Yeah. In the sense of like that, he cannot see the inherent dangers of dealing with beings of superior intelligence, and yep. he's constantly thinking he's the upper hand. Mm. And like, as, no, I agree. Like that, he he was the nicest of all the people like that we met so far. But then it's like, as he thinks, starts thinking he is the upper hand, his paranoia then starts to take a hold. Yeah, and it's like, well, the doctor's clearly out to take credit for the stuff that I'm going to find, and it's like, it's yeah. Like, he kind of bit the hand that fed him, essentially. And then he ended up suffering for it. Yeah. Um, One thing is that Quinn would also be a terrible spy. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, he can't, like, do a single, like, you know, oh, I was just passing and I said I'd come in. And Liz is like, he'd have to go massively out of his fucking way to get here. And I was like, oh, I'm going to return to the research centre. Oh, can you drop Liz at the research centre? Uh, No, no, I can't. Just drop her off and then say, oh, I forgot something at home and then drive off again. Like, you're being, and waving at the helicopter. Yeah. It's like, hi, hi. It's like, what the fuck are you waving for? It's like you coming to visit me and then having to go to Balancholic beforehand. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, when they call it, like, oh, there was a man stood by his car in the middle of fuck off nowhere. Oh, what did he do? Nothing. He just waved. He just waved at me. I don't know why he waved at me. It's and you kind of weird. wonder would the helicopter have paid him any notice if he hadn't fucking waved? Probably not. <laughs> no. Hey, we saw one guy who stopped on the side of the road. He wasn't doing anything though. You know, maybe his car broke down. So that was like, no. Why is he suspicious? Because he was fucking waving. That's why. <sighs> and then we have his uh, underling, Dawson. Underling, underling makes it sound cruel. Yeah. Um, his second Dawson. <laughs> yeah. Um, her loyalty to Quinn is an issue. Yeah. Um, her loyalty to Quinn is a big issue because from the start she knows what's going on, mm-hmm. and she knows what's wrong, and she wants it stopped, even if only tem- temporarily. But she will not turn him in. And again, I'm going to go back to the same thing I said about Quinn. One of her colleagues died. Yeah. And she knows why. And she will not turn him in. And then as soon as Quinn is killed, she goes off the fucking wobbly end altogether. Yeah, she goes full of conspiracy theories. And it's like, assuming that the doctor was setting up the brigadier and the unit troops for an ambush inside the tunnels. Um, like, nah, she's like, fuck off. Yeah, like, she goes 100%. 
kill them all. We have to destroy them before they destroy us. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that that's excessive. Like, mm. even the Brig, who was fully willing to go in with weapons, he wasn't going in to destroy them. He was going in with weapons as a form of defense. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, what the... She went completely off. Although, again, this goes back to she found her colleague and her friend dead mm. in his house. Yeah. And he had been dead for hours. Like, had the doctor told her or told anyone that Quinn had died, and even if he shared his theory as to how, then maybe she wouldn't have gone so fucking gung-ho at the end of it. True. Yeah, I agree. And finally, we have Masters. Okay, I want to hear your opinion on Masters, because... I have an interesting view of him. Okay. So, he kind of reminds me of Jones, uh, Megan Jones from uh, Fury from the Deep. Mm. In the sense of, like, they are presented as the stern authority figure. But the minute they're presented with evidence as to what's going on, like, they work in relation to the evidence presented. And they don't work off feelings or conjecture. It's like, that's kind of really shown as like when he stands his ground against yeah when pe- like people say like you need to send in more troops you need to send in more troops and he's like no we're going to wait and we're going to see because he's also a lizard sighting saying like no just give them a, you know give the doctor mm. a chance give the doctor a chance and he's like we're going to wait can we get a, a report from the feet the, the forward base and he's he's not showing favoritism to one side or the other but he's he's taken on board what's been said and he's reacting to it and like I did like as well like how he handled like Lawrence because like Lawrence called him in and Lawrence kept expecting him like to you know back him up, mm-hmm. but it's like no no like you called me in for a reason and it's it's not going your way so deal with it. What are your thoughts on Masters? Okay, I think Masters is a bit of a weird fish, right? Because I agree with everything you said mm-hmm. until. Mm-hmm. We get to the point where Baker dies. Yeah. Masters know, or Baker is ill. You know, Baker comes in, he's sick. Mm-hmm. The doctor's saying that there is some sort of... Bacterium. Bacterium that, that's been infected Baker. And suddenly this very cool, calm, not easily swayed businessman quickly packs his papers, mm-hmm. practically bolts out of the room, Leaves back to London without telling the brigadier. Even though, like, they're literally talking about, you know, a possible pandemic here. He runs away. Gets to London. Is clearly unwell. And he just becomes super fucking shifty for the following, like, two episodes. Until he, or three episodes, until he dies. And it's like, he, like, once he's infected, he just goes completely fucking AWOL altogether. Like, the way he was running around London when he was infected? Like, did he even go into the Ministry of Science building? We don't fucking know. No, I think he was trying to reach the, reach there. Um, he got out of the cab, the door was there, and then, like, later on, he's running around, his fucking face all falling apart, going up to people, and I'm like, what the fuck happened to him? <laughs> so, okay. Up until the cab... Mm. I can. I think I like. I in my head, I have a logical progression of where his mind might be going. Okay, mm. so Baker comes into the room. 
and the doctor says everyone keep back like mm-hmm. it's like so don't touch him so potentially this is my own head now masters thinks that this thing is transmissible via touch mm-hmm. and if i don't touch him which i didn't do i'm okay now as i'm leaving i'm a bit dizzy but there's been reports of fucking uh, dizziness headaches all this type of stuff from all the staff I'm, I, I'm fucking annoyed I'm pissed off I'm stressed out to the gills maybe I'm also encountering this particular thing then as he gets back into the train station it's like right I don't particularly feel very well and then he gets into the cab at which point then it's like yeah okay he's off to the races because at that stage he's panicking and the virus is taking hold and like he's a he's a dying man like he's trying to grab a life raft and it doesn't exist but my thing with it is, why did he leave? I mean, yeah, he says he had he has he had meetings back in London, hmm. but he'd been very businesslike. He'd been hearing everyone's side of the story up until now. He left while the investigation was still in the fucking middle, and he didn't speak to the ranking investigative officer who is the brigadier hmm. before he left. I'm like, why did he leave? dinner (laughs) (laughs) but it just seems like when he's got when he's at that moment where he's telling Lawrence like fuck it I'm shutting it down fuck it like we're we're not doing this Hmm. he very quickly jams all his papers in his suitcase he's quickly up and out the door and it's like it's as if he's like I don't want to be near it I don't want to be near it or whatever and he's trying to run away from it but it's like why 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 are you why are you like that you weird fish Um, it's from that point onwards I think his behavior becomes erratic. It becomes erratic in that conversation with Lawrence mm-hmm. at the end when he's packing up his papers. At that point, he's becoming very erratic. And I have no idea why. I, for a while, I, I genuinely thought for a while that maybe the like in a sort of science fiction bacteria kind of way, mm-hmm. it was sort of affecting his brain wiring in a way that it wanted to reproduce itself. Yeah. So it was making him act weird, act out, and was making him expose as many people as possible. But that was never mentioned. Yeah, so they, I they, don't they, think they, that was the case. Yeah, they never tell say exactly what the bacterium is. Uh, one final point: uh, Jeffrey Palmer, a uh, young Jeffrey Palmer, is quite a handsome man. He is. Yeah, he is quite handsome looking. I'm kind of used really to his like older, rubber faced look. But <laughs> 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 uh, so now we have the opposite side of the coin, and we have the Silurians. So we have three. There is the leader, the young one, and the scientist. Uh, for me, I think the leader, Silurian, he's, he's the Silurian version of the Doctor, right? So he prefers research and study. You can imagine that like, if, if he was the one questioning Baker, he was the one asking more questions around, you know, what type of food source do you have? Mm-hmm. How big of a population do you have? How yeah. do you deal with this? How do you deal with housing? Like he was more interested, I think, in the civilization development, and he is—he's actually the one person in the entire story I feel sorry for his death. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, because at the minute you found out that he was like the leader, you mm. knew he—you knew he was going to die. Oh yeah. Yeah, I said no, I don't want to do that. But again, much like the, I suppose the second elder or even the first elder in hmm. sensorites there's shades of kicking bird from dances with wolves yeah and like 
he always like he's always looking out for the best interests of his own people. That he's very honourable when dealing with outsiders. Mm. You know, as as much as the outsiders will permit him to be honourable. You know, yeah. if they shoot first, he's going to shoot back. If they come with a hand, open hand, he's going to beat them with an open hand. I really enjoyed his uh, interaction with the doctor, especially the handshake scene. Mm. That was very touching. I really enjoyed that. And like I've, I, as you say, he's like the feet. He's like the the centered version of the doctor, and. He, yeah, his character is just so tragic. It's just like the minute you find out that he's the old leader, he's gone. Yeah, but you also like you get a very clear understanding as to why he was the leader. Yes, particularly why he was the leader of their species, um, at a point where they thought the world would be End. irrevocably yeah. changed. Mm-hmm. So they were going into hibernation. Yeah. Right. Um. You know, watching him, he's the type of leader you'd want to have when you woke up. Mm-hmm. You no, know, the guy who he'd take his time, he'd make sure that everything was ready. You know, you sort of get the sense that, like, if the world outside wasn't 100% ready for the rest of the Silurians to wake up, he wouldn't wake them up. Hmm. No. You know, he would be very meticulous and careful with it. And yeah, he was kind of playing Quinn a little bit, whatever. But at the same time, you know, he. You know, he didn't drain the fucking yeah, power source yeah. completely. He did it in batches, slow and steady. Let's see how far we can get. Let's see what we can do. Wake up the scientist. Make up the guy who's clearly the military mind, you know. Um, get his sort of um, council together, do you know. I don't even know if he was the military mind. I just think he was probably like... <sighs> See, this is the thing. It's the only he, reason because we don't see yeah. a military-minded person, so he's the the yeah. one I ascribe it to. But, but see, this raises the interesting thing. Okay, is that the Silurians? They were the, during that particular prehistoric period. They were the predominant species. They were the dominant species mm-hmm. on Earth. Okay, no, this event happened, uh, or it didn't happen. But they all went into hibernation. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is that uh, enclave? Is that the sum total of Silurian society left over from Earth? Or are there other pockets in various deep caverns throughout the world? Like, so. Is and how just, deep does that cavern go? Yeah, and is this just like is, like, is he the leader of the remnants? Or is he the leader of this specific band? And does he know, he, like, do they even know, like, you know, like, was your attempts to reach these potential other covens or whatever? We, we don't know. And so it's just like, but. He was trying to look out for the people underneath his remit, yeah. and they got swayed, unfortunately. And he's uh, the uh, he, he's the only character whose death I feel sorry for. Yeah, no. Well, I'd say like the poor like fuckers that got you know contracted the virus because of your know, Baker and the only but character no, I, I, we see interact yeah, with. Yeah. Like, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm the, I'm the prominent, yeah. I'm Don't the prominent. make me sound like a dick. The only the only character we actually see and interact with. No, I agree. I agree. Um, Fuck that they got the story. Oh god. Uh so then we have the young one. Um Who's the Silurine version of Baker? Yeah, he's just like but this is the thing, right? He's the typical douchebag character who thinks that because his people were once in the ascendancy, they're always gonna be in the ascendancy. Hmm. That they're never there's no one ever gonna be able to challenge them or overwrite them. And his interactions with the scientists I find are very interesting. Because he clearly manipulates the darker aspects or the darker desires of his own people's beliefs mm. to gain a following. 
because yeah. at the start the scientist seems you know pretty even even keel hmm. but it's when it's like well we were once you know it's the, the apes were subservient to us like like we can be what we once were like we have the technology i think for someone who's very much violence death to them all i will kill them mm-hmm. um he is actually quite intelligent for fox Hunt, you know like said, he plays the scientist very well and one of the things that i think and we're going to talk about science in a second but one of the things that he plays very well is that after a certain point mm-hmm. he becomes the single source of information that the scientist gets yes anytime the leader says something he's the one who says that to the scientist so he gets to fr- he gets to frame it in whatever way he likes the one thing i will say about him though is he kills the leader which we knew would happen and it's devastating was the young silurian a good leader i think in a way yeah he was i don't I, i'm gonna say that like, he had all the potential to be a good leader because he's clearly charismatic mm. he's clearly a, a force you know mm. You know, and like there's like people like throughout history that have been like that. Um, My thing with though, the reason why I see him as a good leader is he was willing to sacrifice himself at the end. Hmm. He wasn't after power for himself. Oh, it was the dominance of the Silurian race. It was the power for So at the end, when they think the world is going to be irradiated or the territory around them is going to be irradiated, he turns to the scientist and says, No, I will stay. I will make sure you all get to sleep. I will stay and you will be leader when you wake up. And that kind of puts the idea in my, in some ways that puts like the idea of like the young, like scrambling for power asshole. It kind of puts it on its head a little bit because it's obviously he didn't want power for himself. He mistakenly, but genuinely believed that the older Silurian was dangerous for their people. Without the sadism, there's something of Ramsey Bolton about him. Yeah. In the sense of... Because in Game of Thrones lore, the Boltons and the Starks had a huge rivalry. Mm. I think at one point the Boltons were almost in the ascendancy, but Mm. then they knelt. And here we have again, it's a case of the Senators were once in the ascendancy, and the leaders making decisions that I don't necessarily agree with. I should be the leader. Who okay? Better example for me. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously not the entire story, but bits of it is actually Theon, because again, someone who believes that their people are stronger. They're very much a kill them all, fuck them. We deserve the power or whatever, but still willing to make the sacrifice at the end. See. <laughs> Slightly different though. Theon's whole thing is is guided by his by by his father because you know, he he's been quite yeah you've been living amongst the Starks too long you've been you know you're but you're but not Theon a... Theon in himself though oh yeah like he has this childhood idea of what the men of the Iron Islands are meant to be like yeah and it's a vision he had from when he was a child this Silurian he has a vision from the before times it's not the current state he's thinking of the before times. I think if we're to com- find a Game of Thrones comparison, the reason why I pick Theon over Ramsay is Ramsay is a sadist. Yeah. And Ramsay would never sacrifice himself for anybody else. No. Whereas Theon would. Yeah, no. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's just like in terms of it, the um, Ra- Ramsey, I think, is a smarter leader than, than Theon. Mm. Whereas, like, yeah, Ramsey wouldn't make the sacrifice. He is an overall smarter leader. Yeah. But yeah, enough of this Game of Thrones babble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is something haunting yet satisfying about his death, though. It's just like the the you know the crushing of the debris coming down, mm. but his his scream. Actually, before we go on to the scientists, what do you think of the Silurian design? The design, I, I, I'm not really pushing one another. It's interesting. The third eye thing is weird. It does like 15 million different functions. Yeah. I assume it's kind of a like telepathic type thing because it leaves it to move things and I imagine crush people's brains. The noise, Paddy. The noise. <laughs> I, I think te- it was probably telekinetic more so yeah. than telepathic. Uh, yeah, no, the noise is... is the noise, no. no. It wasn't the worst story when it comes to high-pitched noises. But fuck me, the noise. For like our listeners, they look like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Is but if he had swallowed a Cyberman's helmet, yeah, yeah, and, and the and young Silurian is very, very tall, and he's he has a very, very long yeah. back. Yeah, he's very much yeah, very taller, and they ha- they they do speak with uh, the sort of like the as if they're speaking underwater. Mm. Yeah, because you've got the gurgling type thing. But now we'll finish off with the scientist. The scientist is kind of the middle ground between the mm. elder and the younger. Hmm. Um, he acknowledges that humans have evolved but he gets pulled into the machinations of the younger Silurian and again I think the reason for that is because he stops speaking to the leader directly mm-hmm. and all of the information he gets comes from the younger Silurian had he spoken to the leader directly about his concerns it could have been a very different situation he certainly like wouldn't have gone off and infected Baker well, no, but of his own volition, no. No. Um, like, it's clear that his first allegiance is to the Silurian people as a whole. Mm. And I think he, he follows whatever the leadership dictates. Mm. But it's at the end how bloodthirsty he becomes. Because he's the one that says, kill them all. Whereas the leader's the one that says, no, let just lock them in here, let them suffer from the radiation poisoning. But he, mm. the way he says, like, kill them all, it's very kind of, it is just bloodthirsty. It's just like I demand revenge type thing. Yeah, and that's again like that feeds back to my point about the young one, which is like he he just feasts on the darker desires of of people like the scientists, and he mm-hmm. manipulates it into creating like these like just ardent followers. Yeah, I think and I think the scientists are kind of that the perfect blend of the younger and the older. Yeah, it's just unfortunately that he's that the younger swaying. got to yeah had a chance he, to sway him. He fell to the dark side. He was the chosen one. He was supposed to bring balance. <laughs> uh, Instead, but... he has super, like, fucking amazing technology, though. No, he does. Not only does he have, like, weird stock photos of, like, chimpanzees, mm-hmm. but he also can see into the building. Mm-hmm. He could have spied on them the whole time. What the fuck was that technology? Because that never got fucking discussed. Yeah, that's the thing. The technology seems to do multiple things. It's like Captain Kirk's armchair. It seems to do multiple things. Uh, the same way with their third eyes. It's like, um, yeah, trying to like phrase that in a logical way. Like he was going, their, the paralysis ray from their third eye attack. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, they stare at them really hardly. They unnerve the enemy. Uh, but yeah, so that is it for this discussion about our characters. Interesting that. I mean, I think the closest thing we maybe have to a villain is the young Silurian. Yeah. 
But he's the closest thing we have to an to an out and out villain. Yes, yeah. I would agree. Everything, everyone else though, is villains by circumstance. Villains. Vi- yeah, you shut up. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> villains by circumstance. Yeah. It's a good thing we created that prominent characters, and because otherwise it was just like, you know, they, yes, they are villains. No, they're not. I'm looking at you, Marco Polo. Yep. You shall never be a villain in Trisha's eyes. You dickhead. So, we have reached the overall. Thank you for sticking with us. This is actually probably going to be one of our longest episodes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, bearing in mind, I still have to edit it, but like... A seven episode recap takes a long time and we've had a lot of characters to discuss and we got derailed at one point talking about something else. So But I'll but I'm just thinking back, like our first seven episode recap was the Daleks. Yeah. Yeah, I that went that went like an hour and twenty minutes. <laughs> this is gonna be like in excess of that. It's uh, gonna be over two hours, I guarantee yeah, it. Definitely. So thanks for sticking around with us. <laughs> um but I think this is because of our differences of opinion on certain things, I think this has been one of my favorite ones to actually have a discussion about in a while. Yeah, it's always nice when you and I can debate something rather yeah. than just going, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And what did you think of that? Oh, no, literally everything you just yeah. said. Cause <laughs> yeah, because as fun as it was to gush about the war games and um, like, you know, like Unspirit from Space, I, uh, I go back to the faceless ones where we were just in vast disagreements about, about it. Or, so, as previously mentioned, Marco Polo. Yeah, Marco Polo. Well, no, no. Th- th- that was one character in an overall good story. Hmm. We have differences of opinion about the faceless ones as a story. Yeah. Well, here, I mean, what, what are our differences of opinion here? Characters. Differences of opinion on where the, on the, where the brig was, was coming from. Yeah. On Liz. A bit on... A bit on I have we would have been on one interaction with Liz. Okay, um, our interpretations of Baker a small bit. I suppose that, yeah, Baker. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we disagreed on more than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> no, but we'll see what our story in terms of the scoring. Mm. So, final thoughts and a score of five, if you please. So I'm going to say I mentioned it a second ago, but I'm going to say it again. The fucking high pitched noise. Yeah, I have very sensitive ears, and the makers of classic science fiction do not seem to understand that. And I know that they made these shows decades before I was born. But that's not the point. <laughs> yeah. And see, if I had known that the way that you were going to watch it ahead of when you normally would have watched it, I would have warned you about that, as I had done previously. Well, I obviously I watched it back at Christmas, so I yeah. knew that they had the high pitched noise thing. There's, there's nothing to warn me about here because I've seen this episode before. Um, but I hate the fucking thing. Aside from that, though, for me, this is really a story in two halves, both of which are very, very good. And I was saying to Patty before we started recording that, yes, I did listen to this a couple of days ago or watch this a couple of days ago, whereas usually I'd, listen, I'd watch it the night before. And I watched episodes one through four <laughs> and then I went for a nap. And then I went to watch episodes five through seven. And I realized that episodes one through four on the DVD are on one disc and episodes five through seven are on a different disc. And it sort of goes down the line of the two halves of the story, where the first four episodes are the mystery. Yeah. You know, who who are these aliens or who, you know, who's this power? You know, what's happening with the power drain? All this kind of stuff. 
and very much like I mean I love the um all the shots from the point of view of the Silurian that got injured that was fucking mm-hmm. brilliant yeah um I love the reveal of the Silurian because again you're you're only seeing a silhouette and then everything's from his perspective we don't see the actual Silurian for ages which is great yeah like we don't see the, the Silurian full up until the end of episode three yeah which is which is fantastic and and I love that and I love like. I don't love when it assaulted Liz. I love the the fact that we see the attack of Liz from the Silurian's perspective. Yeah. You know? um, and then the second half of the story, so episodes five through seven, are all around the pandemic. It's the science investigation. It's this, it's this different type of story. It's still in the same story as a whole, but you sort of have these two different halves. And it, it kind of works out quite well, because if you weren't a big fan of the sort of monster hunter half, you might have been a fan of the science-y half, oh. which I, I found quite cool. I was a fan of both. Um, I think the second half in the current climate is a little bit on the nose. And I'm going to be perfectly frank. If the current climate of the world in 2021 and the global pandemic, that is COVID-19, is affecting you in a very serious way, do not watch this story. Mm-hmm. Just don't save it for later. Once this is once we're through the hell that we're currently in, and we're on the upswing, watch it later because it can be incredibly upsetting watching it now. Yeah. And that doesn't make it a bad story. In fact, it makes it a very good story. But it is difficult to watch. And I've now watched it twice during the pandemic, and <laughs> I, I I won't be watching it again anytime soon. I'm gonna put that word. Yeah. While I have, you know, I went through some serious concerns I had around the characters, right? And I have concerns around the way the doctor's behaving. I have concerns around the way the brig behaved. I thought Liz got a little bit uppity at the wrong time. I think she was justified in her uppityness in general. But I think, you know, that wasn't the right time to let that out, in my opinion. All of it, in my mind, added to the story. Do you know, it's not like, I'll mention him again, I'm sure I always do. It's not like when Stephen was annoying and it took you out of the story. Yeah. This added to it. It added to the complexity. It added to the story as a whole. And while I really hope that these characters get over those negative parts that I mentioned and that they grow and evolve from them, like, like I want to see, like, Liz the Brig and the Doctor, you want to see them as this sort of weird hodgepodgey, like yeah. well functioning group. Um or at least I want to see the sass coming back. The sass between the three of them last week was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think it worked for this story, and I think every once in a while you need a story that makes you stop and think. And you need a story that affects you at like a moral level and like you mentioned like people saying like oh the doctor who's gotten very woke and very preachy like have you met barry letts yeah i mean (laughs) this isn't the last time he's going to bonk bonk on the head with a fucking message really isn't and i (laughs) shout out to mission log for that shout out to mission log for the bonk bonk on the head thing that's totally i think it was um i think it was john and ken originally who did that um but I'm sort of beating around the bush here because I gave it a five. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel kind of bad because I gave last week a 4.75 and last week was also incredibly good. 
But last week had a couple of leaps in logic in terms of the direction and like where things were placed and a couple of things there that I wasn't a big fan of. Here, the only thing I didn't like about the story and the production was that fucking noise. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else, the direction was great. The music was good. The acting was fantastic. The story itself was good. And it all led to something absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, I give it a five. How about you? So I've said now a couple of times, I think, that this reminded me of the Sensorites. Mm. Okay. And I enjoyed the Sensorites. I really did. But my issue with the Sensorites back in, back at the time was it felt very rushed. The resolution just felt very rushed. I mean, yeah. it, it felt undeserved for Smallville. Here, that issue is completely squashed. Hmm. Over a seven-episode story, I loved every single minute of this story. Hmm. Absolutely. I was not bored a single part. Um, I loved the character development from the core uh, trio. I loved the performances from the guest cast. E- even though Lawrence annoyed the shit out of me, your man acted the fuck out of it. He did great. The suspense was brilliant uh, in terms of the Silurian reveal. Like, I talked last week about how I thought that the the Autons should have been in, in, in my head what a better introduction of the Autons yeah. would have been. Here, it's paced perfectly. Mm. For 75 minutes, you do not get an actual glimpse of what a Silurian looks like. Yeah. And it when it comes out, it's just there and the episode ends. It's perfect. It's done so well. Um... I was also in suspense over would Liz or the Doctor actually get the virus, and it was. I thought Liz did at one point. Yeah, and like there was little, you know, little hints, like with the boat, you know, coming over dizzy or that kind of stuff, or would even the brig get it? Mm. And you and like it have him crippled at like a very leading moment, you know. And last but not least, that ending. That ending is seared into my mind since the very first time I watched it, and all my subsequent watches of it. It hits the exact same. That close-up of John Pertwee's haunted, heartbroken face. Mm. As he, as it, it's, and again, kudos to Barry for making the decision that it's the society and not the knowledge they had yeah. is is what is the loss that's felt. Like, like without that, I've given it a five as well. If that had been the ending. I don't think I've given. I would have given it a five. Because no, I I wouldn't have either. If it had been a um, we could have learned so much. I wouldn't have. And like obviously, okay, credit to Barry because of the decision that was made. But I think a large portion of the credit should go to Malcolm Hulk for the phenomenal story he crafted. Oh yeah, like this, like it's this is proof. Uh, this is a clear indictment as to why Terence wanted his assistance for the war games. Yeah. Like he, he viewed him as a mentor. Here, here is that reason. Here it is in spades. Here's mm. why Terence looked up to him. Like this, like, I, I, again, I said it for the war games. There is not an ounce of fat on this story. It is so good the whole way through. Mm. And I have yeah. one thing about this story. Right? right, it doesn't take me anywhere. It's just something that made me laugh. So. They said, this is what the Earth looked like during the Silurian era. Yeah. Hence where the name Silurians came from. Mm-hmm. The doctor asks the Silurian, are you a Silurian? <laughs> and he says yes. 
yeah. Why would they call themselves Silurians? Yeah. <laughs> now, this also goes into the science fiction thing of how the fuck do they understand English, yeah. right? Um, but it's just the one thing that just made me laugh. In a very serious story, I found that fucking hilarious. Yeah, but it's just like, like, like yeah, because like it's the, it's not the best reprise because like it's just like the shock of seeing a Silurian. It's just holds up the hand. Are you a Silurian? <laughs> um, but no, like I, because like the Silurian just looks on his hand and it's like you know, you know, I think he holds out his hand, but not to shake it. I think it's like it is sort of like a a mimic of what the doctor is doing. Um, but no, like I, I do agree that if the current climate is not playing well with you or is not holding well with you, mm. hold this story off until such a time as you are okay, you're you're okay to view something like this. Yeah. But, but this is a this is this is a defining point for John Pertwee's Doctor. Yeah. It's also a defining point in the history of the show, because. Here we have like an absolute moment where the doctor feels betrayed by his comrades. Mm. He he feels like he even like he even suspects Liz. He asks Liz, "Did you know?" Yeah, and she said, "No, of course not," because Liz is just as shocked and taken aback by the whole thing as well. Yeah. But it reminds me of I'm going to skip the timeline massively. Mm. The five part third season of Torchwood. Mm-hmm. And at one point, there's um, Eve Miles's character Gwen. Yeah, is speaking to the camera, and she says something along the lines of, "I always wondered where was this doctor that he spoke about when we needed him the most. Where was he? Why wasn't he here?" And she says something along the lines of, sometimes he must look down on us and be so ashamed. Yeah, I, I think that's... And that, I, I can't remember the exact quote. I think that's it. Yeah, it's something It's something like that. That's the gist of it, anyway, uh, of abridged it massively. But that little speech that she gives about how the Doctor sees humanity, mm-hmm. I think out of all the stories we've had so far, this story really is it. Mm. This is where you you see that in spades. He feels betrayed. He feels that you know humanity. You sort of uh, you sort of think of like, are they even fucking worth it? Like, I what the worst thing is, hmm? any other season, he'd be able to get the TARDIS and fake and flake away. Yeah, he can't. But not the sermon. No, he's no. He I, I I agree. This is a defining story. I think the other person that I found this is a defi- this is a really defining story for Liz in many ways yeah. Oh, yeah. as a companion. Liz as a companion regularly gets forgotten because yeah. this season is so short mm-hmm. in terms of the number of stories. So like from a modern viewing perspective, this season is so short. Yeah. We see everything from her here and this really cements why I love her as a companion so much. Mm-hmm. Like, I've listened to some of the Big Finish stuff with her in it. I need to get more of it because I now have this desperate need <laughs> to listen to more of it. But, like, Silent Rings is just fantastic. I loved it the first time I watched it. I really liked it back at Christmas. I loved it this time around. I said the only challenge is you have to be in the right frame of mind to watch it. And 
if you're not in that frame of mind, then put it in the backlog and come back to it later. Um. So, thank, no, no, but like, uh, yeah, like it's like like much like the story. It's like it's uh, just a, it's supposed a sad ending. It is a sad uh, ending, but you know what? We will continue on. Yeah, we will onwards and upwards as we go. Mm-hmm. We will uh, be back next week yes. with another story of the Doctor Liz and the Break. And uh, that story is the Ambassadors of Death. Yeah, well, what a pleasant title that is. <laughs> a- a- absolutely. <laughs> And I'm trying to see if I can work out possibly, you know, like he goes to take we're choosing Kurtzvigland cake or dash. <laughs> cake, please. Yes. We're all out of cake. <laughs> My options are or death. We didn't expect such a rush. <laughs> I have one idiot is, is our thing for a trope from the second doctor. I'm going to see if I can make this the season trope for the third doctor. <laughs> cool. right. Everybody, we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.